It's incredibly difficult to make sense of a situation as complicated as COVID and vaccination when there is so much emotion and so much information that's being selectively administered to one side or the other. This podcast is designed not to take sides, not to be left, right, pro, anti. That's not the point. The point is to bring about as much honest information as possible so that we can be aware and make the right decisions for ourselves and for our society. On the show, we have Dr. Aditi Bhargava, who's an mRNA researcher and scientist. And of course, mRNA is the technology being used in COVID vaccines. We have Kyle Warner, a professional mountain biker who was injured when he received a COVID vaccine. And Brianne Dressen, who was injured during an experimental COVID vaccine trial. And they just share their stories. They share the stories of what the technology is from Dr. Bhargava's perspective how it's being used correctly, and potentially how it's being administered incorrectly, and also what the experience was for Kyle and Brienne when they actually reported their injuries, and what that process looks like in a time that's as polarized as it is right now. So I encourage you guys to drop whatever team you're on and just listen to these stories and find the compassion and find the open-mindedness that can really help us all come together and make it through this difficult situation for all of us. Enjoy the podcast. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Worldview. And you might have heard me talk about Worldview before, but this is one of those experiences that is becoming available, which is really going to change the paradigm about how we look at the earth and how we look at space. This is stratospheric ballooning, where you get inside a capsule that floats up over 100,000 feet into the stratosphere using helium as the lift and propulsion system. And then you get to look down at some of the great sites of our planet, the Great Barrier Reef, the Grand Canyon. Maybe you get to go through the Aurora Borealis. There are so many incredible adventures to be had definitely check it out if you're interested. This is a company that I'm involved with, that I'm a part of, and a wholehearted believer that it's important to start shifting perspective. And it's not just the people who are in the capsule, it's going to be the people streaming live from the capsules and really sharing a different perspective about the world, a world without borders, a world where you see the planet Earth as one being like it is, and all of us as cells supporting that being. As soon as cells of any being get out of order and just start reproducing and start doing things without coherence with the organism, well, that's dis-ease. And I think that's what we're experiencing on this planet right now. And so hopefully as we see the organism as a whole, we'll start to take care of our earth as a whole. And I think worldview can really help with that, help shift perspective. And at the very least, though, it's going to be a hell of a fucking ride. It's going to be beautiful, amazing, life-changing in many, many different ways, whether you're looking up at the stars or looking down at the earth for the many hours that you have in the capsule. So check it out. Go to thewholeworldview.com. That's the W-H-O-L-E worldview.com. Next up, we have Eight Sleep. Now, when you're talking about Eight Sleep, you're talking about an amazing mattress that is just super comfortable. Right, Tom? Oh, yeah. 
Tom agrees. This mattress is super comfortable. But beyond that, it's not just the comfort of the mattress, which is important, and also the non-toxicity of the mattress. There's a lot of good reasons to get a mattress like this. But you can also control the temperature. So you can cool down the temperature just like the earth would cool when we were in our non-fluffy climate-controlled beds. The earth would be nice and cold, and then we'd put blankets on top of us. There's something about that that actually just works with most people's bodies. But some people, they want to sleep on a warm, fluffy cloud. And 8sleep can not only cool the mattress, but it can heat the mattress. So you can get whatever temperature you want from 55 to 110 degrees sauna mattress. Whatever fuck you want, you can get with 8sleep. And the result is clear. 8sleep users in their surveys fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, get overall more restful sleep. It's why it's so popular. Everybody, CEOs, athletes, performers, people who just like to sleep because sleep is a universal lever that helps all things. Right, Ian? That's right. He doesn't sleep very well, so I like to talk to him about sleep. He always makes me feel better because I almost always sleep better than him. But then some days when he sleeps better than me, I really feel like I got to reevaluate my life. Go to 8sleep.com slash amp. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash amp. Check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkout using the promo code AMP. Once again, 8sleep.com slash AMP. Save $150 at checkout using promo code AMP. And lastly, we have Onnit. Now, everybody's heard me talk about Onnit. Why? Because I created Onnit largely as a solution to everything that I've wanted to have available for my own life. So it's just expanding the toolbox of all of the tools that are available. I actually had somebody ask me recently, saying what do you do with all of the different supplements and biohacking techniques and everything that you're aware of how do you fit it all in and my explanation was really look i've spent the time to get familiar with all of the different tools all of the different supplements all of the foods all of the practices and i don't do everything every single day that would be crazy but i know which tool to apply to which situation to bring out the total human optimization that I'm looking for in that given moment. So that's how I do it. And on it is a huge indelible part of this process for me. And I know it will be for you. So check out everything we have on it.com slash Aubrey for 10% off always. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Aditi Bhargava, Kyle Warner, and Brianne Dressen. Thank you, everybody for coming to have this discussion and uh, just to have a discussion where we're just trying to help like an archaeologist kind of has their brushes and they scrape away at a dig and try and find some bones of truth here in a, in a world that's been obscured by a lot of fog and a lot of sand and um, and just try to help give a greater understanding of some of the context of what's happening right now in the world with this pandemic with this virus so i want to go to you first dr bargova and talk about a little bit about how what you've seen happen to science which is really a huge part of your life i mean you've dedicated your life to the expansion and preservation of science and science is now like a buzzword you know the shirts that say science there's team science you know it's all of this energy but in that you've also seen a lot of ways in which science has fallen short of the ideal of what science could be should be and was designed to be thank you aubrey 
Um, yes, it's been a very difficult um, process to follow what's been happening to science. Um, but COVID has actually really exposed uh, a lot of loopholes in the scientific process. And as an example, um, when the, the first pandemic with the first SARS happened, it took 11 years to find out what caused that pandemic. And what, SAR, what, what SARS was that? The original SARS or yeah, the- Yeah, the original one. It was, the pandemic happened in 2000. Uh-huh. And um, the first report of the virus, the coronavirus that caused that SARS was identified in 2011. Uh-huh. Um, and that was SARS-CoV-1 or what was it's that? It's called SARS-CoV-1. Yeah. And that was also a bat coronavirus. Um, it was also noted at that time that, um, in fact, the report uh, was a case report in New England Journal of Medicine that one of a, the graduate students working in an institution in Singapore um, actually caught an infection, was taken to the hospital, denied being exposed to the virus, and uh, was discharged but uh, didn't do very well, came back. And then um, um, it was found that he had um, this novel uh, coronavirus or SARS, and um, the strain was checked with the, the lab vial that he was working with, and it was identical to that uh, vial. So he was, working on a, he was working on a lab. So you have a, a lab technician working in a lab. Working it's a graduate with, student. Graduate student working in a lab, working with SARS-CoV-1 and Ebola virus, working on, and is this what they call gain of function research? Is that what, what goes on when people are researching these dangerous viruses? Right, so gain of function, what it means is normally uh, that function is not present in the original, in this case, virus, um, and you add that function. So for example, in this case, the function is that these viruses normally will not infect humans because these are bat viruses or other uh, species. So the gain of function would be when they start infecting humans. And so what that means is that in the lab, you are studying and making mutations in the virus and seeing what mutation causes these virus to attach or infect or establish an infection in human cells. So once you make that kind of a mutation, which is gain of function, and they can uh, infect human cells, then for them to, uh, for someone who's working with them, it's possible to get infected. It's not the first documented case of getting an infection from a pathogen that you're working with. There have been past cases of many uh, lab-acquired infections that happen. Mm -hmm. In fact, you can uh, go and find it on many scientific publications who which document how many cases have been um, at least officially documented. And one is supposed to document as a principal investigator in a lab, if something like that were to happen in my lab, I am supposed to report it. There's a um, chain of command and there are uh, protocols in order. Even if you get a needle stick uh, in the lab, you're supposed to report it because the needle could potentially be contaminated with either human blood or 
even if you're working with animals who have some sort of infection, you're supposed to report it. So if you're supposed to re report a needle stick, you're supposed to report perhaps other um, if, um, odd things that may happen. Yeah. So there's a couple things I want to point to. One is the is the idea that this took really 11 years for science to run its course and establish and understand exactly what happened with SARS-CoV-1. A long period of time before science, like as if it was singular, it's never singular. It's always a discourse of opinions and differing opinions. And I think that's important to establish as well. There is no one science. It's not like there's one Bible. You know, it's the, it's the constant asking of questions and testing of hypotheses that changes and evolves over time. But let's just say the consensus of science took 11 years before is, was really what you were saying. So that's one factor to, to one thread to kind of track and which is very different than what's happened with this one, which has all happened very fast within two years. The other is, is that immediately when this virus came out, there was people who were saying that there's absolutely no chance that this came from a lab, came from gain of function research, even though there was evidence that they were studying this virus in a lab. But the interesting thing was, is the people who were saying, and it's actually since been retracted because it's kind of ridiculous, people saying there is no chance. Well, well what do you mean there's no chance? Like that's not scientific to say there's no chance you know right like that you had you had to have seen that and be like no chance like what are you talking about correct uh there's definitely uh, to say that there is absolutely no chance is a difficult one there's always a chance especially if you are uh talking about viruses that normally don't um infect a particular species in this case humans um and it takes in the course of evolution for um, the, this kind of breach of species uh, uh, barrier to happen or jumping, uh, what is called a zoonotic jump to happen, uh, it happens under a lot of pressure. So for virus if it, or a bacteria to feel threatened that they can't survive in their original host, that's when they will make that jump or when there is too much of um, close contact. Mm -hmm. So in this case, obviously, there is the question that where did that close contact happen with the bats? Um, the bats that originally uh, or carry this virus, they don't live in Wuhan. They live very far away. So how did this originate in Wuhan? Um, and of course, in science, there is, you know, you have to have an open mind. It's a process, like you pointed out. Mm -hmm. um, it, so given the history of what had happened with the original SARS, that there was a graduate student who did get infected, could, um, and as you pointed out, that gain-of-function studies were going on, there were grants that were submitted uh, to do this kind of gain-of-function studies to understand if this virus became pathogenic or be acquired somehow magically acquired the ability to jump and infect humans then what would happen and that's always been the justification for the group of scientists who want to do these kind of gain of function studies i it am it seems not, like playing with fire it's playing with fire it's also to develop biological warfare weapons, if you yeah. like. 
Uh, I definitely don't support that kind of science. Uh, I think it's playing with fire. It's um, you, when you don't understand half half knowledge is always dangerous. Mm. And um, so when you uh, submit a grant to say, I would like to study so-and-so, so you always have to submit what we call preliminary data. That means you have to show feasibility. So if somebody submitted a grant to say the NIH or Department of Defense to say, I would like to do gain of function studies on SARS coronaviruses, then they would have had to submit some preliminary data to show feasibility. That means they've already done some part of that work. So to deny that nothing was ever done, or even if it doesn't get funded, you've done that kind of research to show that yeah. I can actually do it or I or that if I say that this is going to happen this will happen the other thing to keep in mind is that for example how are polio or measles vaccines made they these are live attenuated viruses what that means is that you take a virus that has that infects a human and in this case you grow them in chicken eggs and you grow them a number of times, you passage them, say 15 times. In that time, the virus um, loses its ability, if you like, to actually infect human cells because now it thinks that the chicken cell is its new host. So that's mm. how it's acquiring a new host. So you're forcing it to jump, mm. right? Because it doesn't have any other place to grow. It's not seeing a human environment, it's only seeing chicken environment one after the other. So now it becomes, in a, if you like, a chicken virus. And if you didn't control it, it would become a chicken pandemic. But then you take that virus and you give it back to the humans. And when it sees a human cell, the first time it's working like a vaccine because it can't grow, so it's a dead or live attenuated virus, but your body, takes it as non-self or foreign, and it will Develops mount an immune response, mm -hmm. and you get protection. So if we come to a technical term of a vaccine is supposed to prevent infection, which is what some of these other vaccines, like the polio or the smallpox or the chickenpox vaccines do. And of course, the diseases caused by these viruses are pretty lethal and devastating. Mm -hmm. And these vaccines have done a really good job of preventing. So when you come to COVID vaccines, the same definition, if you apply that, do these prevent infection? And the answer is no, because we've seen multiple breakthrough infections. And in fact, people who get breakthrough infections, despite being fully vaccinated, have the same viral load as unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. So if it's not preventing infection, and in number of people, it's not even preventing severe disease because we've seen number of cases of people being hospitalized despite being fully vaccinated. So in my mind, this doesn't really qualify as being a vaccine. It's, and if, it, if we were to take at face value that these are indeed in some subset of people um, decreasing their symptoms, or causing a milder disease, then uh, it's more like a drug, right? So, and that's what and that's what the data is showing is that in the aggregate, people who have been vaccinated 
tend to have a milder response in the aggregate. And of course, there's variables in, in different individuals where some people have severe or even death reactions in what they call breakthrough cases after being vaccinated. But in the aggregate, it seems like the people who get vaccines, pretty good evidence that they have in general a slightly less severe response. And that's really the, what the vaccines can claim, right? So I would pause here. If this was not uh, such a scientifically, politically charged uh, environment right now, um, we would actually pause and ask, is that really true? Yeah. And how would you um, tease that out? You would need a control group, mm. meaning an unvaccinated, group which got COVID and because um, in these kind of diseases your symptoms are dictated by how um, good is your immune system or your immune responses mm -hmm. you would need a large number of people because there's no way to um, to say that the very variables that are there in you versus you know somebody else you you can't normalize or so, only with so, very large numbers so very large numbers or you would have to have a very controlled clinical trial which is what was supposed to happen with these um, therapeutics which we call covid vaccines so in this case to say that uh, this uh, vaccine is actually helping uh, decrease your symptoms you would may need to make sure that, for example, the Delta variant, uh, which they call is more transmissible, all that means is that it can uh, grow much faster and infect more people. Is that really more virulent or pathogenic? We don't have that evidence, and we don't have that evidence in an objective or scientific manner because we don't have a control group. You would need to have unvaccinated people being infected with Delta variant, you would compare their symptoms, you would compare their hospitalization rates, you would compare their outcomes, taking into account their comorbidities. So ideally you would want to have just a healthy set of people who were naturally exposed to the mm -hmm. Delta variant who didn't have any uh, comorbidities and healthy set of people who were fully vaccinated, also did not have any comorbidities and they got exposed to Delta variant. Now, if those set of people who were fully vaccinated didn't develop the disease, didn't get symptoms, didn't need to be hospitalized at all, whereas only the unvaccinated mm -hmm. did, then you could potentially say with quite a bit of certainty that the vaccines were effective and that this Delta variant was more virulent. But we don't have that. Which is crazy because this is basic science, right? This is science 101. And we have released tr literally trillions of dollars in the stimulus checks. And we're generating an infinite amount of money. So it's not like, ah, oh, where would we get the money for such a thing? Of course, well, we just make it. We've been doing it all, all year. It's not like there's an absence of resources or an impetus to do this. It's, it is interesting that some of these studies haven't been done, especially additional follow-up studies on vaccinations versus people who aren't vaccin vaccinated to really study the effects of what's happening with people who are vaccinated. I mean, right now there's the vaccine adverse event reporting system, which is a self-reporting system, which all of the studies show is dramatically underreported. 
as far as what's happening and it's you know offered by the cdc as a as a repository as a place for data but there's no science being pushed to actually really study what's going on there which is also crazy if you really care about your people you know you run the best science possible and let 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 the best science possible you know give access to that information and leave no stone unturned and just do your best as a as a governing body and and that's where it seems like well that doesn't seem like that's happening it doesn't have to require a conspiracy or anything but for whatever reason the science that would be necessary to determine mask safety vaccine safety or mask you know the issues of that the psychological implications the other variables that happen with lockdowns on studying different psychological issues psychological issues in children all the whole gamut everything that you can look at so you can look at all of the variables have good data on everything present the data and then let the people speak and say like all right look this is all the information that we got what do you guys think this to me is what would be the essence of democracy and it doesn't really seem like that's what's happening you know and i'm not i'm not not in a position to understand the reasons why obviously there's money that can be made in certain areas and not other areas but for whatever reason the thing that i'm is very clear is this type of process isn't really happening right now right and you'll hear from other participants Kyle and Brianna <laughs> that who one of them being part of a clinical trial that how she was dropped and how hard it has been for both of them to report their adverse events so despite uh, the agency saying that anybody can report it you'll see how difficult it's been for them so whether or not we are objectively studying um these adverse events and there are no drugs or therapeutics which don't have adverse events so it's a uh, i'm i'm very uh, puzzled as to why is the scientific community turning a blind eye that this product or vaccine can have no side effects it's uh, it's contradictory to to everything we know about um developing drugs and uh yeah. and and in terms of you you brought up a number of uh issues it's they all we can talk about each of them for hours till the cows come home and we might not do justice um I mean, for example you know like you're saying media always says science is clear i'm not sure which science are they talking about i mean everything that i read in the journals I have 100 more questions. So if the science is not clear to me, I'm not sure how is the science clear for everyone else. Perhaps they can explain to me the the media that claims that science is clear, which science um I mean unlike SARS uh, identification of which virus caused the SARS-1 pandemic for this particular virus, of course we learn from the past. and when this um, pandemic was declared it took them 3 months to um to identify the virus behind this pandemic so if we were to take um them at face value that the first case in china happened in november 
the first reports of the virus behind this pandemic was published in March of 2020. Uh, from the time the papers were submitted to the Lancet and Nature Medicine, um, it took just a week to publish that data. So just to give you, in, in the normal course, it would take anywhere between months to six months to publish, go through the peer review process. But given the urgency of the situation, perhaps it was uh, important to put out that potentially a virus has been identified. But science, for people like me, we know that you know it can change. Mm. And so science has not really been consumed in real time by the media and by the general public until recently. So, you know, you see Neil uh, Tyson deGrasse or you had Carl Sagan who talked about uh, cosmos and things like that. You don't really see such kind of shows for biological sciences. And the reason is that it takes a long time to establish. It's not, um, um, but suddenly science was in, or biological science for the first time was in the limelight in a mm. way that it has never been. And uh, it's not set in stone. So it's always, it, it, it changes and. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, there's two ways that you can look at this. And I love to look at things from all the different sides. One side is, look, we don't have time. We don't have time to do the normal traditional way that we do things. We have to move fast. And even if we're wrong, we have to pre present the case that's going to convince the most amount of people to take the action that we need them to take for their own good. And you could assume some kind of benevolent m manipulation, right? Like basically like, look, we know that this isn't really exactly right on the money and we know that we don't really know yet, but we got to tell people that we know, we got to claim that we're certain. You know, it's like if you're a captain of the ship and you're like, your ship, your crew doesn't know which way to go and you're in a storm, you're like, we're going this way. And they're like, you sure, captain? The captain's like, yeah, I'm sure. You know, even though the captain's like, I don't fucking know. It's fucking stormy. I don't I can't see shit. You know, but meanwhile, he's like saying, we're definite, we're sure we're going this way. So you could assume there's just a benevolence a benevolence to try and you know manipulate people in a way that's to their benefit and that's certainly open you also have to look at where billions of dollars are going you know i think pfizer's profits from the vaccine i read somewhere was like 34 billion just that one company alone you have to look at the money that they spend in the media the money that they offer to political campaigns their influence that they wield because of the money they accumulate and because of the money they're accumulating there. You also have to look at that factor, which is potentially not even a conspiracy, but just self-serving bias. Just they're seeing information and, and looking at information in a way that actually benefits themselves without them even being aware that they're doing it. You know, So you have to look at all of these different reasons and just say, okay, all of this is possible. And most likely it's a combination of all of these things that are happening and maybe there's some malevolent actors maybe there's some bad actors who are actually doing bad things on purpose that's rare i actually think in the world it's rare that people do things on purpose that are bad you know no in knowing that they're doing it even some of the you know greatest villains of our time they all had a justification they thought they were even bond villains right like all the movies 
that have James Bond villains are like, we're going to kill half the population, but it's going to be good for the world. You know, Thanos had the same idea, right? He's the supervillain, but he's ultimately he's justifying what he's doing for a greater purpose. So I think you have to, it's just kind of a way to realize that, all right, maybe there's some people who are intentionally doing bad things, but most likely it's a combination of trying to do good things with limited information, maybe and making mistakes, being victim to self-serving bias where you're looking at data and actually seeing the world in a way that benefits you financially or through power. And then potentially, you know, some aspect of maneuvering strategy and even potentially malevolence. And that's like, that's what you have to look at to, to explain this because it seems undoubtable that things are happening in a way that are manipulative. They're not, people aren't just expressing the truth in an open way they're using different psychological mechanisms to you know kind of move people's opinions and that's a very dangerous thing because then you're giving the ability to not allow truth to speak for itself but allow truth to be you know driven and manipulated and uh and to create actions so i really want to get to y'all's stories here and uh, before we get to your stories i just love you know a brief description of you explained what some of the other vaccines how what their mechanism of action is what they're doing in this particular vaccine you know people are calling it gene therapy it's an mrna vaccine it's different than the other vaccines it's new so what exactly is going on with this co this current covid vaccine like what's the what's the mechanism of action how is it working or at least supposed to be working Yes, um, thank you. I mean, it's uh, fear is one thing that can change the narrative. So I'll just leave it at that. For so fear no has been um, in terms of mechanism of action for the COVID nineteen vaccines. I, I mean, I don't think we clearly know. Uh, there are two different kinds of vaccines that are, or rather, three different kinds of vaccines that are being used. One is the traditional vaccine, which is taking the virus and killing it and giving it and i think there are some countries that have that virus is that the johnson and johnson vaccine no that is not in the u.s okay that's um uh, india has that vaccine which is called covaxin uh, i think china has that vaccine and i'm not sure if russia has that vaccine so which is just traditional you take the virus uh, you grow it and you kill it and you give it back just like smallpox chickenpox mm -hmm. polio and um uh, that vaccine, of course, anything that's naturally occurring, you can't patent it. So there's not much money to be made. You talked about money. Mm -hmm. the, the two vaccines that are kinds of vaccines for COVID-19 that are currently approved under EUA um, or were approved under EUA, the Moderna and Pfizer are the mRNA category and Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are uh, what is called a recombinant vaccine. So a recombinant is taking another kind of virus, in this case, an adeno-associated virus, and you put a portion of the COVID virus, or the SARS-CoV, in this case, the, uh, the portion that makes the spike protein, and you fuse them together. So you have the adenovirus, and you have part of the uh, coronavirus, which is gonna make spike protein, and you give it to people. So the assumption is that the adenovirus, under adenovirus's supervision, the spike protein will be made using 
an individual's um, machinery. So all the ingredients are in your cells. Uh, and what is what is the purpose of a spike protein? Why do you want to make it? So spike protein is the shell of the virus, if you like. Um, um, and this is an RNA virus. It's uh, um, it, so that what that means is that it it actually can be uh, its genome can be made into protein as soon as it gets into the cells. The spike protein, which is the cover, allows the virus to enter its host cells. So it's it, I think the analogy often has been used is the lock key. So if the um, the spike protein is like a key and you have locks of different um, that will, or the key that will fit into a particular kind of lock. In this case, it's a little bit uh, a, a promiscuous key, if you like, because it's not one kind of receptor or a lock, because although ACE2 has been uh, thought to be the receptor through which this virus enters and the spike protein binds to your ACE2, uh, there are experiments done in... Um, certain cell lines, human cell lines, which don't have ACE2 receptor and the virus is still able to infect. So that's not the only receptor. Mm -hmm. So the spike protein is important because it allows entry of the cell uh, or entry of the virus into the cells. So the idea in theory is, um, is brilliant that if you basically destroy the shell and the virus can't enter, then you will not have an infection. So basically you're trying to stimulate antibodies in the body that actively destroy the presence of that particular spike protein. Right. So you want to make antibodies to spike protein so that when it sees spike, it'll bind it and it'll sequester it or it'll... Um, yeah, dendritic cells swallow it up or something will happen. Or other kinds of immune cells. Right. And the other kind of the vaccine, which is the mRNA vaccine, is basically... Uh, the whole message for spike protein, the viral spike protein, it's been modified in some ways, and it's given in um, a shell of what they call a liquid, uh, sorry, a lipid nanoparticle. Um, and so the idea is you deliver um, a partial message instead of the whole virus, which has spike protein and other components, now you're delivering just the spike protein component of the virus into the cells, and then the cells will make spike protein, and then your immune cells will recognize it as a foreign or non-self protein and make antibodies to it. And so when you subsequently get a viral infection, then it can attack that virus yeah. based on the spike protein. So, but there are, um, our cells make spike protein, so they are, um, we really don't know what other uh, things can happen. So for example, with the adenovirus vector, that's been used in the past for gene therapy. And in the past, the adenovirus, adeno-associated viral vectors that were used, they caused issues, meaning they integrated in our genome. They became part of our genome and they integrated in, the integration is random where it can integrate in U versus U versus mm. X is completely random. And so in some of those patients who were uh, undergoing gene therapy trials, they cured, uh, for example, the leukemia, but they caused another kind of cancer because the where these viruses had integrated, and in some cases caused death. 
And so they like again, we're playing with fire here at this point because we're causing something that modifies our genome and we know from the science that we've done in the past and also if we look at this data that things are being modified that are not just so, simply so, the virus. So this the vector that is being used for this vaccine is um, is modified and mutated in a way that it is not supposed to integrate in our genome. So that's, uh, nonetheless, FDA has uh, and put out, um, uh, uh, I don't know what's the word, but um, that if you use adeno-associated vectors uh, for therapy, you're supposed to have a, at least a minimum of five-year follow-up. So even though technically the adeno-associated vectors being used for this vaccine cannot integrate in um, our genome, there are a lot of people who actually have natural adenovirus um, latent, dormant in us, and we don't know if this virus, uh, a mutated adenovector, can somehow activate a virus which is latent in some people. Mm -hmm. And if that virus becomes activated, it can actually provide or do a rescue kind of an experiment, if you like, meaning the virus which is in some people can code for the proteins that are now missing from these modified vectors. And these vectors can use that protein to do whatever they want to do because that's part of their DNA, yeah. if you like. It seems it seems like this to really understand what what is happening because of the possibility of these different things. You would need very close follow up for a long time to understand how this, through many iterations of many cell lives and deaths and iterations of this therapy going through the body for a long period of time. All right, what are all of the possible things that could potentially happen here? Because this is. We're really starting to mess with the with the genome in a significant way. And I've also thought to myself too, even if you're creating antibodies to certain spike proteins, the body is making proteins all over the place in all in all kinds of areas. You know, and I think this is an issue that I think people they think of everything in such specific terms. Like there's only one, like the body is basically like it it has a home depot of ingredients. And it makes its own little particles out of all of this. Okay, I'm going to use a little of this protein. I'm going to use a little of this lipid. I'm going to use a little of this enzyme. Use a little of all this. And it makes stuff constantly. That's what the body is doing. And to pretend that we understand every different thing that the body makes, you know, and all of the different combinations, it's a little bit of hubris to do that, you know, to say like, wow, like, do we really know what's happening when we're creating antibodies to this thing? Are we not going to be fighting ourselves? in some other way as we're potentially fighting this virus you know yeah and then to say that it's safe and effective period you know right. that, that's what it's that's the message and that's what they're telling people is this is safe and effective period and even when you look at a commercial on tv where you say like pfizer makes viagra right and they have the viagra commercial that says side effects may include dot 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 yeah but the side effects of viagra like your dick may be hard <laughs> for up to one whole day and you're yeah like, Eh, I'll take the risk. <laughs> yeah, but then with this, it's a totally different message where the commercials on TV and the media that's kind of portraying this message is saying, do your part, get vaccinated, save lives. This is safe and effective, period. Yeah, totally. 
that's that's kind of the issue that we're seeing is like, okay, well, if you're not acknowledging that there is a potential risk, then how is that science? True. And also what I was surprised to learn is that the unreported adverse events, which is being reported by you and Brianna and many others, they seem to fall or they're pretty common. Yeah, they're clustered. They are clustered. So if for them, for it, for those events to be completely random and not be caused by the vaccine, which is the only common factor between you all, is also, you know, in at any other time you would question that. Yeah. You would say it seems more logical, less investigated. But not to even think about that is is uh, contradictory to the yeah. whole scientific process. And kind of what she means by that is we just went to DC and did this big press conference about vaccine injury, right? Mm -hmm. And almost every single person there is having issues with their heart. They're having neurological issues or neuropathy, issues with their nerves or spinal cord and um, immune issues, autoimmune issues. So mm -hmm. it's kind of three camps. You have people with heart issues, neurological issues or neuropathy, so burning, tingling sensations or autoimmune issues like what I have now or my IgE level, which is the indicator of allergic reaction is like off the charts high. And I'm now allergic to foods and things I never was before. So you're having three main things happening. And the fact that the only common denominator, we're from different areas of the country, we're from different races, ethnicities, all these different things. And the only thing common is we had these vaccines mm. and we're all developing heart, neurological or allergic reactions. Yeah. So what we've what we've established so far, and thank you so much, Doctor, for you know kind of giving us the landscape. We've we've established that there's the possibility of mechanisms of action that we're just not aware of exactly how these different therapies are working. And so, basically, the jury, the, what science should be saying is, look, the jury is out. You know, we're doing we're doing our best. We had a lot of pressure to make a, make something quick, but we really don't know. We really don't know what the effects are. And if there was the proper process in place, everybody getting the vaccine would be tracked very carefully for adverse events and we would yeah. be trying to offer this data. But instead, there's this self-reporting system and I'd love to get into that, you know, and the difficulty that, you know, was kind of hinted at in actually utilizing the self-reporting system because the way that people actually position VAERS as the self-reporting systems are like, oh, anybody can just report anything. It's like It's like you send in a Yelp review you know, or something like that. And it's that easy. And so people who are, you know, anti-vax, they're just like sitting at home and they're like, yeah, I died. You know, yeah. I, I died three times from this thing. And they just send in the Yelp review and like, that's it. And then, so the numbers go up and like, how many times did you die on VAERS? <laughs> I died 12 times on VAERS. You know, it's like, yeah. it's not that easy. And this what people don't, works. people don't realize it's actually a felony. It's a federal offense to submit a false VAERS report. And if a doctor submits a false VAERS report, then they can lose their license or they will lose their license. And right. it takes on average 20 to 45 minutes to fill out a report. And you have to have your vaccine batch number, who administered it, where you got it, what your symptoms were, where you were treated, the doctor's name, phone numbers, your name, your address, everything. So the fact that they say, oh, there's a million trolls that have reported 800,000 adverse events around the COVID-19 virus or vaccine, um, that doesn't really make sense. No, it make, it makes sense to push your argument forward. Yeah. You know, and just use use selective facts and have somebody say that and then lots of these ways in which people get dismissed. Information just gets dismissed by somebody just saying something like that and then okay, okay, cool. Yeah. You know, like that, but nobody's really looking 
deeper. And then if you look even deeper, there's lots of, you know, research that's indicating, maybe not proving, you know, but indicating that VARES is actually wildly underreported. Yeah, like the Harvard study that said it's between 1% and 10% reported. Right. And if that's the case and they have 800,000 adverse reports, even if they're not all severe, right, you have moderate symptoms, that's even still a side effect. Mm -hmm. So when they say it's safe and effective, period, that kind of indicates that there's no side effects, right? That's what you would think if something's safe and effective, Sure. period. So if there's 800,000 reported side effects at maybe a 10%, if we take the high side of that, that's 8 million adverse reactions, which I think we should look into. I would say so. And I look, I know enough people in my group that have been, I know a good swath of people and I know a lot of people, not just not just y'all who've had the more serious side, but I know a lot of people that have had adverse events. Mm-hmm. I also know some people who are healthy as hell, got COVID and had some really difficult times. Yeah, and that's you know? a- And like that, so I wanna say like, I've, I've seen both yeah. sides of things, you know, where there's been people like, man, like you're super healthy, super fit, you got COVID and it's it's like been, two months and you're still really struggling and then i've seen a lot of other people who are also healthy and fit who've been taking the you know taking the vaccine and been like damn like i thought i was gonna die you know like this was this was the worst experience of my life and you know i've heard this a variety of these different things enough so that it's it's raised the awareness of like wow this is an intense this is an intense decision to make yeah and it also points to the fact that the spike protein may be causing adverse events that we did not foresee, right? Like we're not understanding the full role of the COVID-2 virus. So if it has spike protein on it and it's causing this cascade of events and then we're encoding spike protein into people, then potentially we've encoded something damaging into people. Also the alpha variant or the original variant, if you like, uh, unlike... um, other viruses or other respiratory viruses went to many different organs. So it was found in, so for example, your brain, your lungs, your uh, GI or other areas, fat. Mm -hmm. Um, And in contrast, actually, the Delta variant, which was more transmissible, uh, actually reverted to its uh, natural target tissue, which is just the nasopharynx and the lungs or the respiratory tract. and was not found in other organs such as the brain or the heart or the uh, GI tract. So suggesting that perhaps it, it, it was less virulent and had less of an effect. So if um, people became very sick with the first COVID, um, the original COVID strain, it under any other uh, circumstances, this would be an interesting question to ask. What was the difference between the Alpha and the Delta variant? And in fact, you can find that information on Public Health of England, which is doing a, for, although their policies may be very uh, different than what the data is showing, but at least they're collecting that data. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the CDC even stopped collecting data on breakthrough infections in fully vaccinated people unless they were hospitalized or they died. So that means you're not really getting that information. And it took um, the outbreak in um, um, 
in, in Boston area, which uh, in over 272 people, 70% of whom were fully vaccinated for CDC to admit that there are breakthrough infections happening in fully vaccinated people. And uh, if you look at that data, 70% fully vaccinated, of those five, six people who were hospitalized or five people, four of them were fully vaccinated, one unvaccinated person. And the unvaccinated person had severe other, several other severe comorbidities, whereas most of the fully vaccinated were healthy with the exception of one person. And the other interesting thing was that they don't talk, they talk about the symptoms in the fully vaccinated people who had breakthrough infections, but absolutely no discussion about the symptoms of the unvaccinated people, mm -hmm. which would tell you whether the Delta was more severe or not. And I actually wrote to the authors of this uh, paper and they responded saying they did not track uh, the symptoms. And the question would be, wouldn't that be the most obvious thing to ask? Mm -hmm. If indeed Delta was more virulent, then the people who were unvaccinated would have had more severe symptoms. But if, let's just think that they didn't have, if they really did have, the newspaper media would be all over it that these people had more severe symptoms. Yeah. But we can't even find that information. And so it just seems that there are lots of gaps uh, in the scientific process. We are cherry picking a lot to show that things are looking good. The, the Which is why people feel like there's an agenda. You know, when you start to look at the way that things are, even the decision for the CDC to stop tracking breakthrough cases, you're like, what do you mean? Why, why like what? Like, do you, you think the data is bad all of a sudden? Like, you don't need data? Like, this is the most important thing that's happened in this last century, you could argue. Yeah. Right. And, you know? and, and so like, whoa, what? You're stopping collecting data? There's things that don't make, that are clearly don't make enough sense that that's why people say, well, I get it. Things don't make sense. And the only explanation for why things don't make sense is that there's, you know, some benefit that someone's getting from doing things a certain way. And so, yeah. I, you know, it's very understandable to see how people are reaching that conclusion. And that's kind of the thing that we've been running into as well is like, you know, Brianna and I who have been injured by the vaccine, we're not trying to call for an end of vaccines or call for an end of this whole program. But what we're saying is, please at least acknowledge that this can happen so that our doctors can actually treat us and diagnose us. Because what's interesting now is that if a doctor diagnoses something as a vaccine injury, they're at risk of losing their license. So just before we got into this room, I had a nurse text me from Boise, Idaho, where I live. And she said, hey, I heard about your story. I'm a nurse at the hospital. Who are you seeing? Who is helping you? Because I don't know who to send my vaccine injured patients to. So by the CDC and the NIH and Fauci and all these guys not admitting that there's a possibility of an adverse reaction, then we don't even get the ability to have help or support. Yeah, Complete That's the issue. Complete so stop gap. Tell us your story. Tell us what happened with, uh, with you. And, uh, and so we can hear, you know, the process that you've gone through. So my one year anniversary for my COVID injury is actually today, my vaccine injury. So one year ago today, I woke up totally healthy person just a few days before I had hiked up Mount Tipinogos, which is a, a mountain where near where I live. And I did it. The average time is nine hours. I did it in seven. So I was in prime physical condition. And that's part of the reason why the clinical trial um, company, the test clinic, 
uh, enrolled me in their study. You know, they needed healthy participants to make sure that they had a, a solid, you know, study group so they could track the symptoms and see what would happen and, you know, what could go wrong. I was assured th through my contracts with the test clinic, uh, through the protocols that are, you know, put in place through the government, that if anything were to go wrong, that I would be taken care of. Financially, medically, there wasn't supposed to be any, you know, there mm -hmm. was sa a safety net there for all of it. So I've never had a problem with a vaccine previously. Wasn't supposed to be a big deal. So I went and got my vaccine. And was just, just so we know and get an insight into your mind, was your motivation to be in the trial? Was it, you know, look, I want to be part of this trial because I think this vaccine can help humanity? Or were you personally like, I'm a little scared of this COVID thing and I'd rather get my vaccine early? I what? was, so my husband's a scientist and so we're very scientifically minded. So we had been tracking, you know, the progression of the COVID pandemic from the beginning. We have family members that are high risk and I do not want to be the reason that somebody else gets ill and mm -hmm. dies. And so mm -hmm. at the time, that was my motivation. If I was going to be able to get a vaccine that would make it so I wasn't spreading a disease that could harm others, I was going to do it as soon as I could. And yep. so I was able to get it before everybody else. So that's the reason I signed up. Understandable. So, and I think this is just to pause for one brief moment. You know, everybody on either side are so angry at each other. But really, if you stop and take a look, everybody's really just trying to make the best decisions for themselves, their family, for, for society. We just have different data and different ideas about what those decisions are. But everybody's trying to push blame and say, this person's, you know, wants totalitarian control and wants to control and and is evil and then these people are domestic terrorists and they want to kill everybody yeah it's like no right no everybody's just trying to make the best decision possible which is exactly the decision you were trying to make and why you signed up to get the vaccine so you enroll in the trial and uh and which which vaccine was so this? i enrolled in astrazeneca here in the united states okay. which has since been obviously rescinded they were not granted eua um, authorization. So um, within an hour of my shot, I started getting tingling down my arm, the same injection arm. And uh, later that night, my vision became double. And so I was watching TV and there were, instead of one TV, it was two TVs that were stacked. And vision, and so my vision started to go and sound started to become distorted. It's so like a seashell you put up to your ear. So it sounded like there was two tin cans on my ears. And at that point, I remember looking at my husband. I was like, something's not right. So that night, I had a typical vaccine response. And I woke up the next morning, the, you know, the fever and the malaise, everything that you would expect from a vaccine, that had all gone away. But the vision problems and the sound problems were still there. And I got up to get ready for work. And my left leg was slumped. And I was walking into the left doorways. So I thought that was a little strange, right, that my left leg was dropped because I had never had any problems like that before. Um, so I went to work and I'm a preschool teacher and the kids, their cute little voices were just insanely loud. So I remember telling them, it's like, hey, let's use our inside voices, guys, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and it, uh, my symptoms just kept getting worse and worse throughout the day to the point where I had to just park them in front of a TV, you know, and have the lights off in the classroom and just have them watching a learning channel, right? And just wait for their parents to come get them. So um, things progressed pretty quickly after that. I mean, I went from 
just barely being able to kind of tolerate noise to where I had to have, you know, like the shooting earmuffs that block out all the sound. Had to have those on my ears all the time. I'd have the blackest, darkest sunglasses I could have uh, to after I went to the test clinic and they evaluated me and thought maybe you have MS, went to the emergency room, they ruled out MS, they ruled out uh, transverse myelitis, everything. Um, So after that, I was... I went home and I was confined to my room totally by myself. Like my little girl, she sings all the time. Just the sound of her little voice like was too much for my ears. Like, so I was removed from my kids' lives at that point. Mm. Uh, my skin became so sensitive to touch. It felt like my body was on fire. So my little boy, he couldn't even hold my hand. Um, it was too, my teeth were too sensitive. I couldn't brush my teeth. And my husband, he'd come in the room and even the sound of his pants swishing was too much for my ears. So it was complete darkness, complete silence. Um, And I'm someone that, you know, I work with little kids. Like, you know, I I thrive in chaotic and loud environments and, you know, um, and so that was removed. And so I went from someone that valued um, human connection. And you think about people, you know, social distancing and everything that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, imagine being social distanced to the point where you can't even watch TV, you can't read a book, you can't escape with music, you can't go on a hike, you can't go on a walk. You know, you're just trapped in a body that's attacking itself 24 seven, you know, in complete blackness, complete darkness. Your family can't be around you, your dog can't be around you. I mean, it was the worst experience of my life. It was Mm. terrifying. And I lost over 20 pounds. You could see every single rib in my body. I lost my ability to walk. I became incontinent. Um, And when I lost my ability to walk and became incontinent, I obviously was admitted to the hospital and they thought it was anxiety. So. Yeah, it sounds like it. Right. You know, and. (laughs) Standard. Standard. Yeah. (laughs) That's what what happens when I get a little nervous. Yeah. Right. Especially. Before a basketball game, it's exactly my same. Yeah. You start peeing your pants and stop walking. Yeah. Especially after surviving the pandemic for a year. Yeah. yeah. So if your legs stop walking, don't go into the ER and cry about it because they're going to pin you as, you know, anxious and it's going to be over. So I was sent home from the hospital with intensive at home physical and occupational therapy because my injury was that severe. And my chart said anxiety due to the COVID vaccine. And it stayed that way for months until I went to the NIH for research and I was able to get appropriate diagnoses, neuropathy, sensory neuropathy, short-term memory loss. So if I repeat myself, I'm sorry. Um, Let's see, what else is there? Oh, severe POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which Kyle has as well. I have mast cell activation syndrome, dysautonomia, you know, um, and still to this day, I mean, we can have an intelligent conversation, which six months ago was not possible for me. I couldn't do it. I had Mm. such severe brain fog. I couldn't comprehend, you know, the next day, the next hour. Um, So I'm glad that my brain has clicked back into place because that was a whole other kind of nightmare to have your just personality removed from your, from who you are. Yeah. So, so one, so there's a couple of issues to discuss. One is that some people might say, oh, well, well, of course, well, that's why the AstraZeneca vaccine wasn't approved. And this, this story only applies to people who got that thing and it was an experimental thing and it didn't work and everything worked out as it should. But it's the mechanism of action that was being used in AstraZeneca is still being used in other vaccines and similar responses are still happening to approved 
you know, yes. people who've received approved vaccines. Yes, right? and that's what's so bizarre. I mean, I didn't say anything about my reaction to anybody other than, you know, the kids that I taught, you know, their parents, because we had to get subs, yeah. my family. I stayed completely silent because I didn't want to cause any hesitancy on anybody else's part until I ran into more like me in the spring. And then it was like people like Kyle from the M mRNA vaccines, J&J &J vaccines. And then before we knew it, there were thousands of us. And then it started happening to kids. And it's the same cascade of neurological decline that happens and actually postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. That's a neurological breakdown. So it, you know, they all are yeah. interlinked, um, but it's really strange to hear stories just person after person after person after person with a very similar set of symptoms, similar family, similar sequence, right? And their doctors, over 80% of the people in our groups are diagnosed initially, misdiagnosed with anxiety. Before. Same for you too, Kyle. Yeah, same yeah. for me too. He told me that I should get on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication and then went into a spiel about how during medical school he had heart issues and got on antidepressants and it helped him a lot. And then four days later, I ended up back in the ER. So that was the first ER visit that I did for my heart. And then I ended up back in the ER. So tell us your, tell us your story. And I don't mean to back, cut Brianne off no. either. Back so. up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to, to have these things in tangent because we're drawing references between your experiences. So which vaccine did you get? When did you get it? What did you experience? So I actually got the Pfizer vaccine um, and I actually got both doses. So Brianne had a reaction after her first dose. Mm -hmm. um, I got my first dose in May and then my second dose was June 10th. And like Brianne, I was really more worried about protecting other people. You know, my girlfriend April and I run a YouTube channel and we were planning on traveling around the country doing free skills clinics for mountain biking, teach people how to mountain bike. And I didn't want to be the guy that got someone else sick. Sure, They come to learn something, get them sick. So June 10th, I got my second dose and it was weird because immediately upon injection, I tasted it. And that's, I was like, hey, you know, what is, what is this? And what I mean by tasted it is I had a saline or kind of like almost like a metallic taste, sure. you know, like salt water. And I asked, you know, and started looking up, is this a normal reaction? They said, no, you know, maybe on sometimes if they nick a vein or something, you can get um, that taste. So if you administer something intravenously, if you ever had an IV, sure. you'll taste it. Well, the mRNA vaccines are, are very specific to being in your deltoid muscle because they use your muscle cells to create the spike protein. Like that, they encode your deltoid muscle cells to, to create spike. In a lot of the studies they did, they found that if they administer it intravenously, then the mice would have heart failure. So that was kind of in the directions. Make sure that you aspirate, make sure that you get it in the deltoid muscle, don't get it in the bloodstream. And the fact I tasted it right away was a kind of a sign. And then also my arm wasn't sore after the second dose, the first time it was. So I was like, huh, this is interesting. And because it didn't maybe stay in my deltoid muscle, my muscle cells weren't activating it and I didn't really have the same soreness. So long story short, um, two weeks after the vaccine, I started to have some weird heart palpitations. This is, this is, I just want to pause for one moment because this is really interesting because what we see is that some people get vaccinated and it's like, yeah, whatever, give me 10 more. I don't mm -hmm. care. I didn't, it didn't even bother me. You know, I got vaccinated and then I went out and, you know, played around a golf and then had a couple of beers and then I was like, yeah. I didn't even notice anything. And then some people are having severe reactions and, one variable could be is when you're going through tissue you you're not using a like a sonar ultrasound to find out exactly where the muscle tissue is and where there might be a small capillary that you've actually pierced and you're actually pushing something into it's impossible to do it that is. really so it could it could be just one 
possible hypothesis could be accounting for some of the difference between people who are receiving vaccines is maybe how much is going into the muscle tissue versus how much is actually going through capillaries or arteries or veins or whatever that might be actually yeah. delivering this. And that's what's actually interesting is both Pfizer and Moderna on their administration guidelines, they say, make sure you aspirate, which means that once you put the needle in, you pull back on the syringe to see if you introduce any blood into the syringe. Sure. It says to aspirate, but the CDC changed the administration guidelines for people administering the vaccine and says, do not aspirate because it will cause slightly less arm soreness the next day. If you mm. do not aspirate. Deltoid muscle is easy to find, but, and that's why it's given in muscle. But besides, uh, you know, in, in Kyle's case, it looks like that there was an IV um, administration. administration during the second dose. Um, but there are other causes for which you might see uh, this kind of uh, variability. It's not being tested how many people who actually get the vaccine are actually making antibodies. So the mRNA, as you've heard, um, these mRNA vaccines, they're to be stored at minus 80 or uh, at um, uh, very low temperatures because uh, they might degrade. So there is uh, no way to really find out from person to person, from batch to batch, from the time it's diluted, um, how much of actually, what's the concentration of intact RNA that's left? So how much of proteins that each person may make is also variable. It'll depend on a number of things. It'll also depend on, you know, what other kind of uh, previous infections you've had. So there's, mm -hmm. you know, coronaviruses exist in us, so if you've had previous coronavirus infections, which will not have been so severe as uh, with uh, COVID-2, then you could neutralize it and the vaccines in a way would be in ineffective. I mean, in terms of natural immunity, which is right. completely disregarded in this case. that The word natural immunity has actually been scrubbed from mm -hmm. utilization on social media, which is insane, mm -hmm. first of all. But anyways... Carrying on. So if you also get, uh, if the the dose of um, mRNA vaccine that you got didn't have, uh, the dose is supposed to be 30 micrograms. So you have to assume that all 30 microgram of RNA is intact or full length, which is very hard to establish. And there's never been any studies done to uh determine whether or not you're getting exactly 30 micrograms, which I've, I can explain perhaps not right now, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. it's not possible. Yeah. So you could also have other errors and other issues just- That could account for variability between that, people. And that probably is. So, so, there's, so there's, what we're establishing is that there's variability in the administration site and how it's administered and whether it's aspirated, whether you're making sure it's going into the muscle cells, there's variability in how the vaccine was stored and how much there is intact. And then there's also variability in what the body's immunohistory yes. looks like. And so there's lots of different variables that are making each individual different as they approach the as they approach vaccination. Yeah, and one thing that I thought was interesting that Brianne told me is so far, and I'll get to my story in a second too, but so far the average age of vaccine injury is 33 years old. 
and why is that? You know, like, is it because the people that are older have less of an immune response and their body attacks them less? Or could it be that younger people are more vascular? Maybe they're more active? Is this, is this the average age or the median age? So I think that's important. This is the average. And so, but uh, younger and younger populations are not included in that number. Yeah. So this is just for the adult population. This doesn't include... Right. teenagers and yeah. children and and my concern after seeing what's happening with the moderna vaccine in europe uh, especially with my myocarditis so uh, is Swelling it the uk the and yeah so the uk and sweden uh, a bunch of countries over there they actually stopped using moderna altogether in anyone younger than 30 because of a higher rate of myocarditis. Mm. And so if you think about maybe there's some kind of immunogenicity, reactogenicity happening, then you start administering that to younger and younger populations. There is the concern that you could be causing, uh, you know, there might be a higher rate of incidence of well, adverse it makes events. Sense if, if the immune system has more troops, basically, and it's more high powered, and then you're targeting it to attack something, yeah. anything in particular, then it's going to galvanize all of that support and all of that energy and all of that power to be used for good and for also self destruction. Yeah. You know, at that point, which is, you know, one one way that this seems to make sense. Yeah, and that was just something I thought was interesting because as we start doing kids, that 33-year-old age number is gonna keep coming down sure. and down and down. So but the dose is different. So it's one third the, the dose, right? One third, so Moderna is given at 100 micrograms and Pfizer at 30, very similar products, but, and the more RNA you have, you know, one of the things that is very important in any kind of immunity is our thymus or T-cell education, which, uh, the thymic function deteriorates as we age, and uh, it, it, you know it's really there till you're 35, and after that there is more and so it becomes harder to train, and that's why you have childhood vaccines because that's the time you can educate your T cells, and that thymic education is is almost like a black box, and that's very important for your immune cells to learn. It's very integral part of your innate immune responses. So before you can have adaptive immune responses, your innate has to work. Innate means you're born with it. So, uh, and of course the vaccines rely on your own immune responses. They're not, they're not equalizers. We've seen yeah. that, right? So you, if you don't have a very good immune um, system or your immune responses were not trained before, then you see the consequences of that. Yeah. So, so tell your story. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Um, Lots of things to talk about. Yeah, it's a very multifaceted subject. But so two weeks after my second dose on June 10th, I started to just notice some weird heart palpitations. And it almost kind of did feel like anxiety. I've never struggled with anxiety really in the past, but I was like, oh man, my heart's kind of jacked up. And I actually got to the point where I just cut all caffeine, you know, and any like stimulant in a drink or anything, just got rid of all of that to see if it was maybe causing it. And I actually started to feel so bad that I took a few weeks off mountain biking and hadn't ridden at all. So about a month after my vaccine, I went on a bike ride with my girlfriend and my heart just went up to like 160 beats a minute on a very mellow climb, which is a lot higher than I'm normally. And I couldn't get it to come down. So it was just stuck up and I got stuck in a tachycardia. So like a high heart rate. And even when I went back to the van, I was like laying there trying to meditate and deep breathe and get my heart down. And it was stuck at 130 couldn't get it down. Usually my resting heart rate is like 55 to 60. So I was like, okay, this is weird. And an older friend that was with us is like, dude, you need to go to the hospital. 
I was like, oh man, I know it's going to be expensive. Like I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to do this. So we were in Sun Valley, Idaho. It's about an hour and a half to two hours from Boise. Decided to drive back and try to just meditate and see if I could get it to drop. By the time I got back to Boise, it was still at 1.30. We went to the hospital and um, my resting heart rate was super elevated. My resting breath rate was 22 breaths a minute. Usually like uh, average one is 13 to 15. And then when we got in, I was telling them, hey, I think I am maybe having this reaction, you know, the pericarditis or myocarditis. I read about that being a side effect of the vaccine and my heart isn't working right. And the guy who talked to me first and was kind of like triaging me, he's like, no, you're not. That's very rare, you know, and have you tried pooping lately? And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, so bear down like you need to, to poop. And if you squeeze your core, it'll reset your heart. And I was like, no, I, I don't think it will, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, so then he's like, all right, well, we'll bring you back. And uh, so he's like, just go hang out in the waiting room for a bit. So I waited in the waiting room for three and a half hours with just holding my heart, like, you know, like, oh my God, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if I'm going to die or something, you know? I'd never had this happen. I get put into the back. By that time, I started to have some other symptoms as well, which was like severe joint pain, almost felt like a rheumatoid arthritis. And then my head, I just had like this pressure headache that was equally distributed around my entire head. And so when I went back there, I was telling him like, hey, my heart for one and my joints and my head, something's wrong. Like, do I need to get a CAT scan or something? And the guy just basically said, you know, if you think you need one, I'll order you one. But it's up to you. You tell me, like, do you want me to order this for you or not? I was like, I don't know. I'm a patient. You know, you're supposed Mm -hmm. to help me. He's like, well, I think you're just having an anxiety attack. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you Toradol. So he injected me with IV Toradol, which is an anti-inflammatory, and it helped my joint pain kind of relax, and it really just like mellowed me out. And with that, my heart rate went from like 130 to about 110 when I was laying in the hospital bed. And he's like, oh, cool, you're getting better. Like, look good. And I was like, this isn't normal. He's like, well, I recommend that, you know, take some time and maybe we'll start putting you towards a therapist or something. Like, I'd like you to look at seeing a therapist and maybe getting on some antidepressants um, to help you with anxiety because it seems like you're really stressed out. And so then I left the hospital with that. And what was interesting is looking back on my paperwork, they ran my troponin levels, which is the marker for damage on your heart or stress on your heart. And a healthy troponin level is like anything under a one, anything above a one they considered damaged. And my troponin was a 25. And so what was interesting is in my notes, he wrote troponin level elevated, um, chronically sick or older people may have a baseline similar to this. And I'm a professional athlete and I came in for heart issues and my troponin was elevated. My breath rate was elevated. My heart rate was elevated. I was sore, complaining of all these symptoms. And he told me I had anxiety and sent me on my way. So this is going to make a lot of people feel like these doctors are out to get us. Yeah. And and I I don't think that that's a reasonable explanation. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually there. The confirmation bias is so strong because you're taught to believe what the authorities tell you to you know, tell you to believe in medical school as you go through the whole process it's like if the consensus if the data says this if this is it this is what must be true and you know you can look at examples of this whether it's the you know h pylori causing ulcers and people all saying this is bullshit absolutely not this is quackery mm-hmm. and then one doctor has the courage to be like no it really is and drinks a beaker and gets the ulcers and there's lots of ways in which you know even from hand you know ignis semmelweis and hand washing you know where he's like look if you wash your hands and deliver babies like less people are going to die and they're like they 
like beat him and put him in a mental institution for this right like confirmation bias is so strong yeah it's just so absolutely strong that this doctor even though he's seeing this data his analysis that it couldn't be the vaccines because of what he's been told and, and his training is causing him to misread this radically and it's not that he's bad or he's trying to hurt you and he's like fuck you kyle mm-hmm. you know it's not that no no he's at all. just like the confirmation bias is just such a strong psychological force yeah that that's what's really happening here and until the conversation opens and expands and people become aware and the doctors become aware and the patients become aware and this awareness becomes pervasive we're still going to suffer these same things where you know people aren't going to be looking at the real cause of what's happening they're going to yeah. say take a shit and have some antidepressants you know right and what's interesting is i understand and empathize with what he was feeling too right because they worked through this whole pandemic and they saw a lot of people die and a lot of people get very sick and they have a solution now we have a solution to this problem and this Mm -hmm. 20 something year old guy came in and told me it's causing him issues you know fuck that guy Mm -hmm. that's kind of how it felt because as soon as i said the word vaccine it was like you're an idiot you know, yeah. I have a fucking conspiracy theorist dude from Idaho, 20-year-old yeah. guy who's a conspiracy theorist, and he thinks that this vaccine's out to get him. Yeah. And this is a solution to the problem I've been dealing with for a year. Mm-hmm. So I understand. And that's why I wrote, like, I talked to the resource nurse afterwards and just said, hey, you know, I ended up in the hospital again four days later with kind of like a mini heart attack, like severe heart cramp and burning. And I ended up going to the hospital. They sent me to a cardiologist and I got diagnosed with swelling of the heart. So like, I, I did have this thing happen. And you know, I just want to let you guys know that it was what I thought it was and he overlooked it and I don't want him to get in trouble. You know, I don't want to cause him to lose his job or anything, but I think we should discuss this. So she had me write a letter and I wrote a letter to him and the response I got from the hospital was, you know, thank you for your letter. As you may know, our ER doctors are not our employees. They're independent contractors. We'll refer you to the company that. Mm. Wow. So, So they're worried about liability it's not sure. even about the patient at yeah that point. exactly and then i did get a note from the the company that independent contracts with the hospital and they said hey sorry you know we talked about this and we're still learning so much with covid and this is a very rare thing and so we'll try to do a better job in the future which as long as i can help them maybe look at things a bit different in the future right now if they have a 20 year old guy presenting with the same symptoms maybe they'll say hey let's get him to a cardiologist right away then that was worth that conversation i mean that's the whole point of this podcast here right like the whole point is not an agenda other than to raise awareness about all of the possibilities that might exist and this is unfortunately not what people are doing Mm -hmm. people have an agenda they have something that they're trying to do and they're willing to justify their agenda by by any means necessary yeah and that's not the way it's like treating it's it's not treating people with the reverence and respect to say here's the truth and you're a sovereign being and here's the here's the risks here's the effects here's the results here's everything that we got everything that we got you know may you know you make the best choice and maybe in certain circumstances there needs to be overt controls you know like i don't think anybody was arguing with the first few weeks of lockdown Mm-mm. when this first came out and we're like shit like who knows what's going on in fact all of the all of the energy around it was like wow the skies are clearing up and the and the waters are clearing up and we've had this sacred pause and everybody was like excited about it it was like it seemed like a reasonable thing 
and then then lots of different layers of manipulation started to expose itself and selective data and, and ways in which the two weeks became indefinite and all of this and that's where the division started to mm-hmm. happen here but there are certain instances where it's like all right yeah okay f- for sure we don't know what's going on here let's close everything down for a couple of weeks let's look at the data and then let's expose the truth and unfortunately that hasn't been what we've seen is the awareness and so that's why there's you know we're having this conversation other podcasters are having this conversation we're having the conversation just to be like hey like here's a lot of information that you might not be getting yeah and so this is important for all of us to have because we we trust you like the listeners here like i trust y'all like use the best information you can i have reverence for you as a human being like i trust you just get this information and then make the decisions that make sense for you and also take into consideration the societal implications we have to look at all of this mm-hmm. information fairly and that's the problem with censorship that we're facing Absolutely. right now because and discredit yeah. like discrediting people just on face value cuz we get that a lot as well where it's like oh well you know what you're not actually sick you're just trying to get famous and it's like dude i have everything to lose from speaking out about this you know like every sponsorship everything that we have built up our whole life people if we are deemed anti-vax we could lose everything and the only reason i'm speaking out is because i get messages all the time from people that are alone and they don't have a resource they don't have people to talk to and that's what brianne has really been for me with the react 19 group and like i posted on my youtube channel just hey here's what happened to me this is why we've been quiet because we were just out for three months i was in bed for two months solid couldn't move, couldn't walk, even standing up and like trying to cook breakfast in the morning. My heart rate was 120, 130. Like I couldn't do anything. And so we were just completely silent and scared to say anything. And finally I posted, this is why we've been quiet. This isn't about dividing people. This isn't about the vaccine or not. This is just why we haven't been posting. And a ton of people started reaching out and say, oh my God, I'm going through the same thing. Thank you so much. Like I appreciate this. And a doctor from the UK who's really pushing the aspiration narrative he did an interview with me about a week and a half ago and it reached a million views already and there's 20,000 comments with over 5,000 comments of people saying I'm going through the same thing mm-hmm. and it's one of the only ones that hasn't been pulled off YouTube because I was very neutral on purpose right it's like I you have to stay in your lane and I'm not we're not condemning the vaccine we're not saying it's anti anything we're just saying this is information that needs to be considered so that people can get help and we can have a conversation as a country how do you have a conversation one side isn't talking or one side isn't listening? Yeah, one side has duct tape over their mouth. Yeah, and, and the other one's like this. How do you find something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm well, and like, how do you find something you're not looking for? Yeah. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. Yeah. And we've been drilled. I mean, the medical community, I feel super bad for them. We have family and friends that are, you know, physicians and nurses, and they can't see it. They don't know what they're looking for. The CDC and the FDA, they have drilled into the medical community's heads that, hey, we're going to provide guidance, you know, for you to be able to follow. We're going to analyze the data, you know, complete and full data, and we're going to be able to uh, help everybody through the pandemic. We're going to be able to give you the tools to help the people, whether it's vaccine reactions or with actual COVID. But unfortunately, that's not happening. And so what's happening is now you've sown distrust between the patient and their physicians, but it's not entirely the physician's fault because they don't even know, they have not been informed by trusted sources that this is even a possibility. Mm -hmm. And so I have all sympathy for these physicians that have people Mm -hmm. like Kyle 
land in their ERs because they can't see it. They don't know what it is. Right. And you it's know? uncomfortable. Like it's so uncomfortable for them because it's, we have a solution. Let's just fix the pandemic. No one wants COVID to keep going, right? And they're saying herd immunity, we can fix the pandemic. We can end this whole thing if you guys just get vaccinated. And then it's like to admit there's a problem with that or a problem with the vaccine. It's uncomfortable. Don't, no one wants to have that conversation because that means that maybe we can't get through COVID right now. Mm. Maybe it's endemic. Maybe we're going to live with this and maybe we need to just figure out how to live with it. Mm -hmm. So I think I understand. And I don't know, it's just interesting. The whole like one side has their ears closed and one side has their eyes closed. <laughs> and it's just funny because we did this big press conference in DC and Senator Johnson invited personally Dr. Fauci the head of the NIH, the head of the FDA, the head of the CDC, the CEO of Pfizer, the CEO of Moderna, all of those people they invited to hear our stories about vaccine injury. And we had multiple scientists and doctors speaking out as well. Not a single one of those heads decided to show up. Or send someone in their place. Zero. Mm -hmm. Zero percent attendance. And from these the are people, people that charge. I've talked to directly. So they know. Yeah. So like they know all of it. So this, sorry if I can interrupt. Go for it. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> this, uh, this actually demonstrates failure of scientific process. Mm -hmm. Science is supposed to have an open mind. Here is, here are your patients telling you your symptoms, and even if it's an observational study, they're not documenting it, or they're saying it doesn't exist, or it's all anxiety. Um, Rihanna's case getting dropped from the clinical trial or in the published uh, New England uh, Journal of Medicine, which was the report recently came out, misrepresentation in a way of her symptoms or in other cases as well, downplaying the adverse events. And so, so just to just to clarify that there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine saying that participants in the trials, who had adverse events, their symptoms were misrepresented. Should I fill that in? Yes. Yeah, since it was you, my you, trial. Yes. Yeah. You can fill that in and then I'll okay, complete so my thought. The clinical trials, obviously it's a two dose setup, right? So if you can't finish the dosing series, what happens? So if someone has an adverse event, right? Mm -hmm. And they get dropped from the trial. Um, after the first dose. Yeah, after the first dose, that's critical data, right? Yeah. I would want to know what happened to those people that were dropped, right? right. Why couldn't yeah. they finish the series? Well, I'm a prime example of what happens because I couldn't finish the dose series. The drug company told me not to have the second dose, which makes sense because I was hospitalized, right? Well, in the clinical trial report says that all um, participants elected to forego the second dose. So that right there is... It's misrepresentation, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Obviously. And then the other thing that they say, and they, it's like the second paragraph, um, that they follow up with all severe adverse events for up to 730 days. They followed up with me for 60. And here I am officially today on day 366, 366 days, critical data. I've been in three different clinical, um, three different scientific studies, right? And they followed me for 60 days. And wouldn't you think that if this was your drug that was doing this to people, wouldn't you want to know what your drug was capable of doing to people? I mean, that's a lot of data and a lot of information and a lot we have learned, right, Kyle? Like in those last 10 months, 
that the drug company is completely oblivious to. The other issue with the clinical trials, because I'm not the only one that this has happened to, as we found out, sadly, uh, the apps is they only track a preset set of symptoms. So headache, malaise, you know, typical. Mm. There's no free form where you can enter in your legs stop working, you start peeing your pants, sensitivity to sound, sensitivity to light. None of that happens, right? Like it just, it's not there. And so you have to call the test clinic and report your symptoms. Well, as one of the scientists pointed out yesterday, that's an issue because instead of patient reported symptoms, it all of a sudden becomes clinician reported symptoms, which there's a confirmation bias, there's reporting bias. Sure. So that's another huge flaw in the scientific process for these reports to be collected on, you know, to, to be able to present unbiased data. So there's some very cl clear holes in how they're collecting the data that um, obviously should give everybody pause because we were told that these scientific reports are, you know, it's the science, trust the science. And it's like, okay, that's great, but there's flaws in the science. It's yeah, flawed. We got we to open up the, we got to open up the process and see what there's spots that are missing and opportunities right. to make science more robust. It's not the people who don't trust science or trust science is saying we want better science. You right. Know, we want, we want, science to continue as the process that it was designed to be the art of asking questions and proving hypothesis to the best of your ability and i think that's what we're all here for it's all it's all very much like let's get the let's get the information and science is the best process we know to get information mm -hmm. you know and so let's do it in the best way possible right. you have to run i yeah. want you to you mentioned react 19 as a group can you just mention what that is and i would love yeah, to invite you guys if, yeah i'd yeah. love to continue for a little great. while longer after after you leave but if you want to just mention that and we'll let you uh Okay, get on with you. your adventures. Glad that you can get on with your adventures. Right. And thank you so much for having me. I, I really do appreciate it. I mean, this this platform, it means a lot to a lot of people, not just me and Kyle and Aditi, but I mean, there's thousands of sick people like Kyle mentioned that are sick, hiding in the shadows, just completely lost and unable to know like what's happening in their bodies. And so, I mean, you know, first and foremost, we need them to know that they're not alone. Um, that that we are here for them and we we you know we're here to support them and in any way that we can and so we've established a uh, organization it's a patient advocacy advocacy organization called react19.org and what we're doing is we're tracking several different patient groups to see how we can uh, develop protocols that will help people get better increase uh, awareness like what we're doing today uh, as well as you know basically just trying to give these people a safe environment where they don't have to feel like they're crazy. Yeah. Cuz they're not. And this is not uh this is not a strategy to make a bunch of profit. No. There's 19. no money in this. Yeah, and yeah. what's sad is just one quick thing is um Brian told me when I started talk, like talking with her, they had been monitoring over 5,000 people in this group of React 19 and six of them committed suicide in the past month because they don't have anyone to talk to. I yeah. have people messaging me saying, hey, I haven't even been able to tell my family because they're going to disown me. You right. know, I don't know what to tell my family. They're so pro, they're pro-vax, they're super liberal Democrat, you know, and they're just like, we're so pro-vax, we want this to work so bad that I can't even tell my family I'm having a reaction. Yeah, and yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a sad, sad state. It's brutal and it's cruel. It, it's just, I've never seen anything like it. And it's person after person after person after person being abandoned and marginalized and discounted and brushed aside. And they're just, they're suffering. 
patients, doctors, scientists, anybody who seems to have a narrative contrary to what capital S science this for the first time in history, an absolute consensus mm-hmm. is is dictating. Um, you know, they're suffering the consequences from that. And uh thanks for standing up. Thanks for standing up for the patients and uh and for spreading that awareness and safe travels on your flight. Thank you. I appreciate so much. you. And yeah, I would love to continue the conversation for a little while with uh with both of you. So Kyle, in the in the break there, you were showing me some videos of, you know, you have some interactions and some stories of people who like Brianne, like yourself, have experienced some of these injuries, which some people pretend are just fictions of our imagination. They're just not real. They're making stuff up. There it doesn't actually exist. Vaccines don't hurt people. But you know these people. Yeah. And you know a different side of the story. And these people aren't just numbers. It's not just one of the 800,000 reported on VAERS. It's not just one of the 15,000 deaths. These are real, these are people mm-hmm. too. And these are, and that, I, that number 15,000 has probably gone up. That was probably a month old on the VAERS yeah. report of the you know, deaths that are attributed through the VAERS reporting system as being a vaccine injury, fatal vaccine injury. But you know some of these people and you were showing me some videos and it's, it's really you know pretty heart-wrenching to see and actually know the stories of these victims yeah and the saddest thing is that one of the people that they're attacking the most and by they i just mean people that are pushing the mainstream narrative right one of the people that's getting attacked the most is this young girl maddie and she was 12 years old when she did the clinical trial and she got injured with the vaccine and her symptoms are very severe so she has paralysis from the waist down she can't feel her legs at all and her brothers and everyone, all her friends and stuff, they make fun of it, but they like slap her legs and see if they, she can feel it. And she was showing me videos of them just like messing with her. But she's just a normal kid, right? That's been paralyzed from this experience. And she also has paresis of the stomach. So what's happening is she can't actually digest food. And so she has stopped eating solid foods and she has a, a tube that goes through her nose and then back down her throat. And she has a little um, kind of port right here and they have a syringe. And so like we were at dinner and they're sucking water up out of the cup and then she hooks it up and then pushes the water through her syringe into her stomach. And that's also how she gets uh, medication too. So when we were hanging out in her room the other night, um, she actually, they crushed up a Tylenol, put it in the syringe and then it was my job. She's like, all right, you gotta try this. And I you know, gave her Tylenol through the syringe. And I was like, does that hurt? Like, what does that feel like? She's like, yeah, it hurts. I can feel it. And you know, this is a 12 or 13 year old girl that's dealing with this, right? And then what was interesting is I was like, hey, Maddie, can you show me some videos of you just before this happened? You know, like what was like like before? And she started showing me all of her TikToks and all the little dances she used to do with her friends. And it's just a normal, completely healthy, you know, non, she didn't have any comorbidities. She wasn't obese. She was totally normal girl dancing with her mom, having fun. And then she got these shots that changed her life irreversibly. And she was actually showing me all the hate comments that she gets where people say that she's faking it or that she just got in a car accident and broke her neck and now she's paralyzed and she's trying to get famous saying it's a vaccine injury and people are saying oh that's not a feeding tube that's oxygen because you broke your neck you know and she just has all these people commenting telling her that her story is fake and it's like I'm hanging out with her watching this happen and what's sad is that even the mainstream media is calling and like trying to attack her and her family saying tell us the real story. Tell us what happened. Tell us what comorbidities you had. Tell us when this actually happened. And it's like, it's documented. 
it, she was in a clinical trial. You couldn't ask for a better case study than this, and they're trying to discredit it. And like I was telling you, at this event in DC that we did, Brianne invited over 300 people, and most of them couldn't attend because they can't travel because of either severe neuropathy, severe arthritis, or they're in a wheelchair. It's just too difficult to travel, right? Well, just with the group that we did have, there was four people that have transverse myelitis, which is basically whatever the mechanism of attack is with this vaccine, it attacked their spinal cord. And four of them were in wheelchairs due to spinal injury from the mechanism. Whatever this mechanism is with the vaccine, it attacked their spinal cord, caused them spinal injury. They're in a wheelchair. And one of the guys, Doug, who's a farmer from Idaho, actually lives pretty close to me, super sweet guy in his 60s. He got vaccinated because the country told him and asked him, hey, can you please do this, do your part? He got vaccinated and now he's paralyzed and it burst his spinal cord. He has no hope of recovery from this. He's paralyzed for the rest of his life now. And people are saying he's faking it, just trying to get money. And it was weird because I talked to him and we were just having a conversation out front of the hotel. And he's like, can I tell you something, Kyle? He's like, the first 30 days of my treatment cost $1.2 million and I can't get a diagnosis that it's a vaccine injury. There's no funding. The companies have zero liability right now. Pfizer, Moderna, no one is paying. And the government has a setup where they have um, CICP, which is like the last resort payer for vaccine injury. And they have over 2000 claims already submitted. And it says right on the website, 99.9% .9 of claims are under review. They haven't paid a single person yet through this program. Zero funding. And wow. so I think like we were talking about earlier, this, like I'm very lucky because I all I had was a heart issue and then POTS, which is basically postural orthostatic tachycardia. It means when I go from laying to standing, I black out, like my vision comes in. And what that is, is it's a neurological issue that basically messes with your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system. So your body in a change in elevation, it doesn't adjust your blood pressure quick enough and your heart rate will skyrocket. So that's what I have. And I can live a functional life and I'm, I'm slowly getting better. But a lot of the people that are bound to wheelchairs, they're going to require care for the rest of their life. And if there's no money there, then what is like, what do these people do? Are they just a sacrifice? Are we willing to make this sacrifice and just say, hey, get fucked? Like, what do you do? Well, in some ways, the argument that this is an acceptable collateral damage makes some sense if the people who get vaccinated, the people who get vaccinated do not get the do not get the virus and do not spread it right like if that was if that was ironclad you get this you never get it again and you never spread it but there's going to be some people who have collateral damage then you could start to make like these are the these are the soldiers that had to die in this war yeah for this war but that's not the reality the reality is is that you can get vaccinated still get the virus and still transmit the virus so this whole and public still health die from it and still die from it but the transmission of which which is the justification for all of this well i don't want to get other people sick or if you get this and you won't get other people sick that's the only justification for the collateral mm -hmm. damage it's also the only justification for vaccinating kids who have an enormously good set of data on their response to the actual virus itself yeah you know like sure there's rare cases where kids have had difficult times with the virus itself but overwhelmingly you know they respond very very well yeah to actually contracting the virus so vaccinating children seems insane 
because they can still spread it and like they're taking a huge risk yeah. that looks like it may very well outweigh the risk you know of getting the virus the risk of them getting vaccinated is is very is very real yeah and what's interesting is that by admit or, admitting that there is collateral damage you have to first admit that there's a risk right and so that's the problem that's what we're fighting right now is that it says like i've said many times it is safe and effective period and so you know in the last interview i did with dr campbell i made a statement that said i believe where there is risk there must be choice but if we don't admit that there's a risk then we're never going to get through this conversation about mandates right because if if there is a risk and you say hey you know why aren't you vaccinated oh well i'm kind of worried about developing pericarditis or myocarditis or neuropathy or I'm, i might die from the vaccine so i'm kind of worried about that and i'm just going to take my chance with covid that's a different conversation than when people say why aren't you vaccinated it's safe and effective and you go i just don't trust the science right that's kind of what they're telling you now is like well this guy isn't getting vaccinated because he's just scared he doesn't trust the science he doesn't right. believe in the science and it's like well no actually i'm not getting vaccinated because i'm worried that it might cause me an adverse reaction that i don't have any help of getting funding with or any support and i can't talk about it without getting censored and it's very likely that my family may disown me if they're pro-vaccine so it's like i'm just going to take my risk with covid because at least if you catch covid people acknowledge that you had covid and they'll help you yeah yeah yeah, it's a, it's then and then the the social psychodynamics of this are really intense because it's been positioned that if you get the vaccine, you're a good citizen, and if you don't, you're a bad citizen. And this is pervasive all the way down through. You know, I've talked to a lot of parents with teens and parents who don't want to get the vaccine and are really anti-vaccine, and their kids are like, "No, I want this, mom. I want this, dad," because they know that all of their friends will tell them that they're a bad person mm -hmm. if they don't get it you know like they're not doing their social duty they're not they're not being good and there's all of those psychological mechanisms that's that allow people to want to be better than somebody else first of all yeah and then also to kind of create a lot of this social pressure on top of the other political pressure and, and mandate pressure that exists so there's lots of factors but as you said unless we start to analyze risk and say look these are this is a very personal and important choice for somebody to make because of the risk profile that exists. And I mean, that's it's really essential mm -hmm. to restore that truth and, and understanding of what is possible so that we can have a real nuanced discussion about what's going on here. Yeah, and it's similar to the conversation that we're having as a country around nutrition and diet, where it's like, you know, you can eat all this food, like here's candy, Coca-Cola, pizza, all this stuff, right? And there's no ad there's no risk with it. A lot of people just think, oh, that's nutrition. And it's like, well, no, we have to actually say, every time you eat this, it contributes to this comorbidity or this factor. And if people understood that, then like this whole health dynamic would be a lot different as well. And personal choice relies on risk assessment and understanding, okay, what are the pros and what are the cons? And if the pros outweigh the cons, then most people will make that decision, but that's still their choice, right? Yeah, yeah, and and not only that, like as you know, Professor uh, Matthias Desmet, who I interviewed, was talking about. He's a statistician, and he was looking at how nobody's actually comparing also the ancillary effects and the causal effects of social isolation of all of these different policies that are in place. No one's comparing those to the benefits 
of this either, which is just science, right? Well, we actually submitted five grants in March of 2020 on exactly the same thing, predicting that these lockdowns are going to have huge impact on our um, mental state, and especially for children. And they were all um, either triaged or the reviews were like, no, this is not going to happen. This is, you know, that would be admitting that these lockdowns will have adverse events. So, of course, uh, none of those grants were funded um, to even study what was the impact uh, of these lockdowns on children. And, of course, that creates a lot of stress and isolation that um, can also adversely event your own immune systems. But it's interesting, Kyle, that you talked about nutrition and in that case, in that scenario, sugar and fat have been made the evil, um, um, whatever you want to call it, that if you take away fat and you take away sugar, everything is going to be fine. But uh, unfortunately, that's not how it works. These are all very integral component of nutrition. I mean, as you know, for our cells to generate ATP, which is source of all our energy, you need sugar, glucose. So if you take away all sugar, what is the source for the cell? So then it has to go to alternate mechanism, which could be protein or fat, but then it's a completely different biochemical pathway and process that's not uh, normally utilized. Um, fat is not actually bad. Again, everything in moderation. Fat is uh, is what is around your neurons yeah. for myelin. You need it. If you if children are deprived of fat, there's not going to be enough myelination. Fat also sends satiety signals to the brain. So when you eat a food that is a wholesome food and has fat, that sends signal that to your brain saying, stop eating, you're full. So if you're never going to eat fat, you're always craving or you feel like you're not actually had enough nutrition, then you know you can only fool yourself and say, okay, you can snack with this, you can snack with that, but that's sort of cheating. Well, in, in time, and this has been, and this is something that I wanted to, to pose this question to you because over time, that understanding has become more pervasive. Everything for a long time was all low, everything was low fat, non-fat, and sugar was was fine. Like everybody said, put as much sugar as you want in here and just take the fat out. And then we've seen the catastrophic impact of that dietary decision of saying, yep, sugar's good, fat's bad, you know? And and then now that's we're becoming more aware that people yeah. are putting butter in their coffee and no, the, and the low fat, non-fat. And now MCT oils are now the buzzword food to put in there, which is a type of fat. Everything is, everything over time, science has kind of eventually found the truth of like, okay, now we're starting to understand this. And, and it's taken years, like five decades of this, where this process has kind of come to, and it's still, it's still an issue, but it's, it's working its way through and it's just taken a long time. When you look at, this current issue with vaccination, with COVID, do you have confidence that given enough time 
the truth will emerge as the truth is emerging with nutrition. Of course, there's still debate, but you know, do you have confidence that we'll look back in 10 years and be like, damn, like we really made some mistakes. Do you really, do you trust that science will eventually yield the truth? Well, I surely hope so. I mean, science, the future of science, if people lose faith in science, if, um, I mean, that would be, I think, uh, the end of medicine as we know it. And uh, it was interesting that, you know, previously you were talking about how there are the protocols that need to be followed. And perhaps that's um, important for physicians and doctors who see patients or nurses to follow a certain protocol. But in the lab, there's always deviations from the protocol. That's how discoveries are made. I mean, I remember when I first started to work with um, surgery residents in my lab, uh, within, it was a learning experience for me too. And they would come to the lab and within the first week, uh, most of them would say, we are failures. We can't get any experiment to work. And these are very bright surgeons. And so I really didn't know how to deal with that either because in the lab, 99% of the experiments actually fail. So then I realized I have to tell them that, no, it's not, you know, you, you've been trained to follow protocols. And in the lab, an experimental protocol is just a guideline. And depending on the experimental procedure or the question you are asking, deviations are normal. So don't be scared to deviate. Don't be scared to ask questions. If you do that, then your chances of succeeding will be much higher. I mean, it's again, one question that I often get asked when we are running DNA gels is when am I going to see the double helix? And when you tell them that nobody's seen the double helix, they're like, what? Yeah, you don't see double helix. There is no DNA double helix that you can see. A lot of it is just colorless solutions and you're inferring and you're inferring from good data. And you can infer because you have appropriate controls. And when there are no appropriate controls and there are no uh, proper documentation of data, then your inferences are also just loosey-goosey all over the place. So it is very important that we, we have that open mind that there are side effects, dangers associated with therapeutics. And as you correctly pointed out, that if this particular vaccine or therapeutic was actually preventing infections, preventing people from getting the, the disease and transmitting it to others, then it would make sense to mandate. But if it isn't doing it, then what's the purpose of mandating? And even then, when we have uh, mandates for certain childhood vaccines, if somebody's had chickenpox, they're not required to be vaccinated again. Mm -hmm. We talked very briefly, touched upon herd immunity or eradicating this. Have we had herd immunity for flu? We've been vaccinating year after year. Have we eradicated it? No. So there is a fundamental difference between RNA viruses and DNA viruses. You can't compare COVID to chickenpox because chickenpox are caused by DNA viruses. They don't mutate as often. 
they induce lifelong immunity, which we know that once you have uh, chicken pox, you're never going to get it. Mm-hmm. But even if you've had chicken pox vaccine, you may still get chicken pox. And you will still, in, in some ways, actually be infectious and you could transmit to the unvaccinated. But somebody who, who's had chicken pox will never get it. Doesn't matter if they're exposed to a person who's, had, who's, who's um, actively infectious. In fact, when I was a child, I had, after having chicken pox, one of my friends had it, and she was in isolation, but she could only see people who had chicken pox, and we went and visited her so that she wouldn't be in quarantine Mm -hmm. and wouldn't, you know, go sort of feel isolated. But that's not the case uh, with flu or, in this case, coronaviruses. And when you, if somebody in the household has flu, doesn't mean that everybody in the household will get flu, right? Yeah. And the symptoms uh, of flu vary from people to people. And even if you get flu, it's very rare that you get flu year after year. You have some short-term five-year, 10-year immunity. And in fact, data from people who had the first SARS uh, shows that they are still protected. So maybe 10-year, maybe 20-year immunity you have, maybe not lifelong. And the next time you get that, it may not be as severe. So to completely discount that people who've recovered from COVID also need to be vaccinated is is completely mind-boggling to to me and to the whole principles of immunology. Mm. So let's let's talk about this a little deeper. I mean, there are there is some data emerging showing the efficacy of natural immunity, people who've been exposed and what their responses are. What what is, from your scientific lens, what is the data showing from, you know, the efficacy of natural immunity? I mean, we understand that from a policy perspective, it doesn't matter at all. Only vaccines are mandated. You got to show your vaccine card. It doesn't matter if you have proof of, you know, positive infection and recovery of COVID. Only the only thing they're caring about is vaccines, which seems crazy. Based on the data that I've seen, natural immunity is highly effective. Yeah, and the antibodies are even different, right? Like the antibody from natural immunity codes for the whole virus, whereas the antibody from the mRNA vaccine just codes for just the spike. So yeah. you have less protection, correct? Right. So as, as you say, when, um, when you have a natural infection, first of all, obviously the root of infection is important. Not all viruses uh, infect the same organ. In this case, let's just stick to the respiratory viruses. So the, what you call resident immune cells, they are different in different organs. So obviously the way they first recognize the invading pathogen is obviously different, right? So if you... Um, have like a stomach virus, it's being recognized or the GI or gastrointestinal virus, it's being recognized by immune cells of the gut, which differ from the immune cells of the nasal pathway or the lungs. Um, So in an ideal situation, you have two arms of your immune response, uh, the innate arm and the adaptive arm. So in an ideal situation, your innate arm first kicks in, which is it's going to see if there is previous memory from something that looks similar. So the coronaviruses look similar to the flu viruses. So if you've had flu in the past, 
it'll say, oh, this looks similar to this. I recognize it. Let's take care of it. So in some ways, if you if you were healthy and you've had flu, and this is what studies from England have found that people who've had flu in the past, they were actually quite protected. They didn't have uh, severe symptoms or had really mild symptoms from uh, COVID-2. And that's cross-protection. So your immune cells say, I recognize this. Mm -hmm. It looks a little bit like that. Just get rid of it. So would that be to say then that if you had natural immunity from the COVID-2 virus we have currently, and then it mutated down the road, you'd be much more likely to be protected from that with your natural immunity than from just the immunity and right, from the mRNA. Right, because like you pointed out, it rec- makes our bodies are making antibodies not just to the spike protein, but to the nucleocapsid protein, and in some cases, even to the RNA genome itself. So the RNA itself is, um, is non-self, right? Because it's not part of you. So it, uh, we have a surveillance system that says, this is foreign, attack it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you have what's very robust, um, what we call, and also polyclonal antibodies because they, and and that's the best way to basically basically triangulate, right? So you want everything. It's not like just to say spike protein is the face, and if all you're doing is recognizing the face, next time all I have to do is to put a mask, and you don't know me, right? But if you are trained to recognize not just the face, but my hair, my hands, my shape of my legs, shape or the sound of my steps or whatever it is, then it'll take a lot for me to change all of that to protect myself. I think that's Whereas, a, it's a great it's a great way to look at it. A great right, way to and explain. And that's why it. you see mutations only in the spike region, more mutations in the spike region, and less mutations in every other region. So the more evolutionary force you're putting on it with, say, for example, with um, vaccines, the more mutations you see. I've never seen or heard about these virus, viruses mutating so frequently, but they seem to be mutating, you know, every yeah. month. So this is, a, there's a, I think his name's um, Vanderbosch. He, he talked about this extensively, about the danger of, vaccination in the midst of a pandemic being that it's putting pressure on the virus to mutate basically to change its face because you're identifying one particular face and trying to stomp that out and it's putting pressure on the virus to actually mutate into a different variant like the delta variant for example which can escape the facial recognition again i love this analogy and and continue to infect hosts and so, you know, there's an argument that, you know, this is actually what we're doing is actually creating an infinite amount of variants, or at least the pressure that could accelerate the amount of variants that are being created. And and I know for me, <clears throat> and anecdotes are, from a scientific perspective, anecdotes are interesting, but not, you know, they don't prove anything. But they're valuable, though. They're, valu- they're valuable, but they don't, they're not enough it's not enough evidence to n equals one and for me n equals one is i got the alpha you know i got the the regular i i mean i assume it was it was right when everybody first had coronavirus right around that time in 2020 and i don't know summer 2020 and it was two of the worst days you know i've ever been sick i mean it was miserable it felt like 
my body was all the nerves on my body were on fire i was like feverish like i couldn't believe it was like a crazy two days and then i recovered subsequently i've been exposed many many times to many people who've had it and haven't had any issues and so for me in my experience it's been like whoa all right well that that makes sense to me like i got a really strong Mm -hmm. reaction my body freaked out for two days it went into full you know full defense mode overload it was really hard and then in my experience it's been like all right well i've been exposed a lot you know people have come over for dinner and then next day they're like oh my god i'm so sorry you know i i just tested positive and we were sharing drinks and you know like crazy things that have that have happened and i'm like and i'll you know i'll wait out a couple days i'll get tested a couple times like well i guess i'm okay mm-hmm. but and this it, is not an anecdote i mean the whole that's the that's the that's past the, right that's that's, like, that's yeah. how vaccines were developed right so there was a they were against the cowpox when smallpox vaccines were being developed. There was a farm maid who used to work with the, the cows and she got the cowpox disease, but so she was resistant to getting smallpox. That's where the idea came from. And they took um, uh, material from the exudate, they called from those pus or pock marks that were there and you expose it to people from cowpox virus and then they found that they wouldn't get smallpox. Natural immunity has been known to be the gold standard for the longest time. We just talked about how you've had chickenpox, you don't get it again. How if you've had childhood measles, you never get it again. And if you were to look for antibodies for those in me, you wouldn't find them. Uh, that's having high levels of antibody in you uh, alerts the immune system that there's something wrong. That's that's how what happens in autoimmune diseases. That's how, what's happening, for example, with celiac. Right? You have gluten. Gluten is foreign protein. Doesn't get cleared from your system. Your immune cell says, "What's this foreign protein doing in here? Make antibodies, kill it." So now you want to make keep on giving boosters so keep on making spike protein and so your body will always Constantly be in, have, in yeah. an alert state i mean that's how immunology works i have really no idea what's happened to the immunologists as to why they are so uh, scared to come out and say that natural immunity is is the thing if anything and and like you're saying that um yes you you had it and then you subsequently got potentially exposed a number of times and you didn't get it so it's not an anecdote it's uh that's how you document and then do a scientific study and that's been done previously for many other infectious diseases so suddenly why is um why is this any different? Yeah, and I think we as a society are asking the wrong question and we're asking how do we stop COVID? And like you said, we've never stopped the flu. Right. And so like how if if the real question is how do we live with COVID? You know, if it's going to be endemic and it's going to be something that comes back every single year, are we just going to start living with boosters every 6 months? And we just have to get booster after booster after booster of this mRNA vaccine? 
that is causing people issues, like dramatic issues, you know, Ron Johnson. And not working to stop COVID either. Yeah. And Ron Johnson at this big press conference in DC, he put up a graphic and it showed like the amount of adverse events from flu vaccine, you know, versus the adverse reported events on VAERS from the COVID-19 vaccine. And the flu vaccine this past year had like two, I think it was 2,300 adverse events and COVID vaccine, 800,000, you know? And it's like, yeah. okay, so if we're going to start mandating this for even children to start getting boosters every six months and we're paying billions and billions and billions of dollars a society that for something we're just going to be living with forever, like at what point do we just say, stop it? Like we need to stop and we need to do early treatment. We need to take care of people that do get sick. We need to start telling people to be healthier because it's a fact the number one cause of death with COVID is, is obesity and comorbidities, you know? And, and you diabetes, had some, Yeah, right? and you had data saying that um, it binds to the fat cells potentially differently and can cause, that's maybe one of the reasons that it's causing excess viral load, right? Right, and it, uh, not everybody, so let's just assume that the spike protein only bound to ACE2 receptors, but that's, like I mentioned before, it's not the only thing that it binds to. But the the amount of ACE2 receptors in different organs, first of all, is different. So, um, and the amount of ACE2 receptors in you versus Kyle versus me could be different. Mm -hmm. And the ACE2 receptors, you know, there is no such thing as, you know, it's not like a um, steady state or mm -hmm. baseline levels and that it never goes up and down. Uh, certain things that you do, certain activities that you may do may change the levels of your ACE2 receptor. But um, but just uh, going back to the uh, natural immunity and the fact that this, um, when you, when you ha get a natural infection, your body makes uh, antibodies or has ways to recognize different components of the virus um, and does provide you cross protection. There's data, recent data from um, uh, England uh, Health Ministry, where they uh, actually looked at antibodies to other parts of the virus, the nucleocapsid, for example, in fully vaccinated people compared to unvaccinated and who got infected with the virus. The fully vaccinated people had much lower antibodies to the nucleocapsid protein compared to the unvaccinated. So what that tells me is that the, the vaccines are actually interfering with the function of your immune system to actually mount a robust immune response against yeah. the virus mm -hmm. when you get infected. So Because you're uh, saying it has like a limited toolbox and it says, oh, well, we have this new virus that came in and I have this hammer. And instead of creating a hammer that works perfectly to smash this one, I'm just going to use this little hammer and see what I can do. And, mm -hmm. and the other thing that most people do in these publications is compare the spike protein anti when you look at all the neutralizing assays and things like that, they're just taking the spike protein component then disregarding the other components, right? The nucleocapsid and other. So if you look at the natural responses and see how much does the spike protein contribute to it. So if you have a pie, spike protein contributes only 35 to 50% of that pie. The rest is to the other parts of the viruses. But the vaccine is 100% of spike protein. So when you compare natural immunity to vaccine-induced immunity, and by just looking at the spike protein, you're comparing 
35 to 50% of the responses to 100% of the responses and saying, look, how good is this 100% response, right? Because 100% is your bar. Yeah. And that's the only comparison you're doing. You're ignoring the rest of the 50% of the natural immune responses and saying that has absolutely no significance. And this is, this is where the, the mistrust is really starting to develop, is there's things that when you actually just start to look and talk to scientists and you know people who understand natural immunity and then start to look at the data that's emerging and then recognize that there's been suppression of natural immunity, it's not being considered in mandates. Yeah, they and pulled the hashtag off Instagram. They pulled the hashtag off Instagram. You know, all of these things and you start to go like, what the hell world are we in? Yeah. And that's where, and then people take that, which is a, again, a question. And I think the important thing is to allow yourself to sit with the question without filling in the blanks. Because some people will ask that question, like, why are we doing this? And then immediately they'll take seven leaps to, ah, the powerful elite cabal is in some eugenics program and this is what okay slow down <laughs> you know like slow down but we need to ask this question first like why is this you know why is this happening and then apply some sound philosophical principles like occam's razor like what's the what's the simplest way to explain this and you can just look at some very basic things like money self-serving bias some confirmation bias some very simple things to explain it and maybe it's more you know you can leave your open mind to more but there's clearly there's clearly a lot of misinformation and a lot of misunderstanding of what's going on and and the policies are reflecting that you know if at the very least if you wanted to have a mandate right if you really felt like that then it should be either you have proof of contraction of covid and the sufficient antibodies or you have vaccination one or the other that's that's the only thing that would actually make sense if you decided that mandates were yeah. important right but the fact that they're not doing that, you just start scratching your head going like, well, this seems like a money grab. Yeah, it does. And then one thing that I thought was interesting too is like you said, with the Delta variant, the spike protein mutated more than anything else and it caused it to be less virulent, meaning that it's less deadly, but it spreads more and spreads faster, right? So we're getting these changes in the virus like we talked about earlier. And it just is interesting because if we keep, if it keeps pushing and it starts mutating to be less deadly and less deadly, at what point do we just start living with the virus and get back to life? When and do this we take is, the this is the very This is the very interesting question. And this is where you have to start accounting for all kinds of other different factors and actually start, if you really want to say, how do we live with the virus, which I think is the right question to ask, then you have to say, all right, how do we support people with all of these comorbidities? How do we support nutrition education? How do we get better nutrition in schools? Yeah. How do we put together programs and encourage people to go outside and to exercise and to get adequate amounts of vitamin D? I mean, the correlation between vitamin D and severe reactions is strong, which yeah. vitamin D levels are also correlated to obesity, but also the actual levels that you get from mm -hmm. the sun. There's many factors of like pushing, all right, let's get back to some basics here. Are you getting good sleep? Are you getting good, you know, good time spent outside in the yeah. sun? Are you getting good water? Are you getting good food? Are you getting good exercise? And then of course, yeah, we know the detrimental effects of loneliness. Are you right. getting, uh, what's your community like? Yeah, are how you much laughing? Are you smiling? Are you are laughing? You how, much, how much time are you spent with the community? How much time are you spent feeling seen and loved and, and all of these different things? Then you start to have this whole picture yeah. of, what this, of what this really looks like. But again, we're just myopically focused on this one thing. And as you know, Professor Matthias Desmond said, free-floating anxiety we're all anxious we all feel existential anxiety and then all of a sudden all of that gets 
shifted to this one thing, which is COVID, when that becomes the the number one the number one thing that we're of concern. And so our natural inclination is when we have something, an enemy, attack it, attack it with full force. And that gives us a lot of energy and we have all the energy. Ah, we'll kill COVID and then everything will be fine. Rather than looking at the holistic approach, like, all right, we kill COVID. We still have epidemics of loneliness. We still have epidemics of obesity. We still have epidemics of you know, abuse of substances. We still have all of these things that we're not addressing that and you know social isolation that that's going down through the generations we have the issues of exponential tech and the way that all of these different social media influences are affecting our psychology we have so many things to take a look at but instead everybody's just focused on this one thing imagining that if we kill it everything's going to be great well yeah. it's not and Is also it? oh sorry sorry go ahead okay i was just going to say also if the goal is to kill covid then why, if it's a global pandemic, correct? It's not just a localized pandemic. Then why are we talking about a third and fourth shot for people here in the U.S. when most of the rest of the world isn't even on shot one? You know, there's there's not vaccinated people in most of the world. So why are we getting the Western civilization three or four shots already and we're not focusing on the rest of the world that has zero? Wouldn't that be contributing to killing COVID? Like if vaccine really does kill COVID, then don't we need everyone to get vaccinated? Like, isn't that a good question to ask as well, too? Well, we know va- vaccines are not killing COVID, but so just to <laughs> uh, to uh, take a step back, in case of the, the Delta variant, it actually emerged pretty early on, and um, I have it in my blog. And there's a I don't remember the name of the first author from that paper, but it was published actually in March of 2020. They already showed that the Delta variant was predominant in Europe in March of 2020. And they uh, showed data that um, this um, Delta variant is um, more, it, it can replicate more because it actually has three mutations, one in the spike protein, that's why it's called the Delta variant, Delta uh, in its amino acid position 416 of the spike protein, um, D, which is aspartic acid, changes to glycine. That's why it's called uh, the Delta variant, D416G. But there are two other mutations that are accompanied in this uh, Delta uh, mutation. One in its um, part of the genome, which allows it to replicate. And that allows, it makes it uh, replicate 10 times faster than the Alpha variant. And so it was already emerging or the virus was already trying to go back to an equilibrium where it was not going to kill. This is before the vaccines were even rolled out in such large quantities. The virus was already going on a trajectory where it said, I don't want to be so pathogenic to the society in a, yeah. in a way or my host, because if it kills all, all its hosts, then it has to actually find a new host. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's incentivized to be less deadly, but more, but spread more. Yeah. And uh, to me, actually, there's the ethics to mandate vaccine. There's a ethical question, as we talked about, that not everybody has the same baseline immunity or same baseline health conditions. So the vaccines we know all vaccines actually have caused adverse uh, reactions. Uh, several of them, they've gone through several uh, iterations, right? There was no such thing as that 
they got it right in the first uh, shot. So uh, measles vaccines have been recalled multiple times. Rotavirus vaccines were recalled over here due to safety concerns, despite stringent clinical trials and having a placebo group. And at least in the U.S., for the rotavirus, I was reading that one in 10,000 to 20,000 deaths was considered one too many, and they were stopped. And here we have over seven, eight, I don't know what under if it's underreported, 70,000 deaths or I don't know how many deaths. Yeah, there's 17,000 on VAERS currently and they estimate 10% and reported. And we haven't even hit the pause button. We, instead of hitting the pause button, the CDC and the FDA went and authorized it to be given to five to 11 years old. And they so, said in that meeting too, we won't know the risks until we start giving it to them. And one of the panelists said that if we don't approve it, then the black and the brown children will be left out. That's not the reason to give authorization there. If there is, there are other ways that are compassionate use, if it was indeed preventing um, in you know people from getting infection, then that would be a valid reason. But then to, in my mind, m medical procedures or uh, interventions should, never be mandated. Mm. We we have to, especially for healthy people, we have our natural immunity for a reason. We have our natural defenses and that's how evolution occurs, right? If mm -hmm. you don't allow it to um, to learn, how is it going to teach? And the for me, the analogy for our immune systems is that because there is this education of the immune system that I mean, for example, if you have a child and you are always helping them and doing their homework so that they can look like an A student, are you really making an A student? When they're exposed to the real world, they're going to yeah. fail. And that's what yeah. they're doing with the vaccine. So. And so you help your immune system with deadly uh, uh, diseases such as polio or smallpox, but you let the immune system learn and evolve for non-deadly diseases. And yes, there will be a subset of population who is more at risk. And you can have preventative mechanisms or therapeutics or take extra care for those people, but that does not mean you have to mandate it on everybody who's healthy and 90% of people don't even have very severe uh, effects from this COVID. Not everybody gets respiratory distress from having COVID. Yeah. So what is, I want to pose this question as we wrap, as we wrap up this, this podcast for those people listening who have, you know, these ruptures in their family, they have friends, they have children even who are just following this kind of mainstream narrative, fully safe and effective. If you don't get it, you're killing people. You know, this is, this is, we have to kill COVID. This, you have to do your part. You know, Bob, this is this clear one-sided argument what do you recommend to start to open the conversation that will kind of help people start to see you know the other side of this yeah uh, the other side of this issue you know so where where do you point people what do you obviously there's this podcast but where where are some of the resources that that you guys recommend and what are some of the things that you've seen effective because i'm sure you guys have dealt with this personally yeah as well you with colleagues and maybe family and yeah my mom didn't believe me at first right just because she was very pro and it's just like i think what really 
started to change that a little bit was the WHO has kind of formally acknowledged that myocarditis, so they say myopericarditis, which means myo is the swelling of the muscle and peri is the swelling of the liner around the heart. So it's kind of like a gelatinous liner. They have acknowledged that myopericarditis is is happening in young men. And it's at a pretty high number. Like there are some numbers, the last one I read was between one in 1,000 and one in 5,000. So if you had 100,000 people in a stadium, that means 100 guys there are going to have heart swelling, which is irreversible. It never heals. If you swell, if your myocardium is affected, which is your heart muscle, you're, it's lifelong. It's, mm. And so what's interesting is it's prevalently happening under 30 years old. So that's why they've halted it in Scandinavia and countries for Moderna, because Moderna is the three times the dose of the mRNA virus or vaccine, sorry. So Moderna gives you three times the dose, which means that you're having a higher incidence of this heart issue. So now you're only allowed to get Pfizer in those countries. Well, I got Pfizer here and I still had a heart issue, but I was lucky I didn't take Moderna. Yeah, it might have killed you. It might have killed me. And so what's interesting is I think when I started to show my mom, hey, look at the WHO is saying this is happening. So if they know there is a risk for young men, period, like they know that, they're acknowledging that, then why do the commercials say it's safe and effective, period? That's a lie. You know, that's a blatant lie. So then why are they lying to us? Like we have to ask those questions. And I think that once you start looking at it and say like, there's so many things that don't make sense at all, you know? It's like, okay, why are they lying about it being safe and effective? And if it is truly safe and effective and they're not lying, then why do the companies have no responsibility? Why do they have no liability? And then another one that's interesting is Pfizer. They were the only approved vaccine, right? Well, did you know that there's actually two Pfizer vaccines right now? There's an approved one and an unapproved one. And the approved one is called Comirnaty, C-O-M-I-R-N-A-T-Y. And you have to go find Comirnaty and look it up and ask for it by name to get the approved version. So if you go in right now and you get a Pfizer vaccine, just asking for a Pfizer vaccine, they give you the EUA unapproved version with zero liability for Pfizer. And Pfizer said they have not found someone to manufacture the Comirnaty vaccine yet, even though the formulation is the same. So you can't even get the approved one. Why? If it's safe and effective, then why can you not get the approved version? Mm. Yeah, I mean, those are those are starting to get into starting to point to you know these the the premises that we all understand there's yeah. a lot of money involved and there's a lot of bias involved and and uh, and a lot of decisions are being made for profit rather than for public health and this is an issue with medicine in general i mean a profit driven medicine model is you know is a is a big issue um you know travis christopherson wrote a book called curable and it's talking about how profit-driven medicine has been a problem. There was a hospital in Corpus Christi where all the doctors just started diagnosing people with certain conditions and giving surgeries and it just got out of hand because they were billing the insurance companies for all this. All these doctors were getting filthy rich. Everybody in the hospital had the prevalence of, I forget which condition it was, and it required a surgical intervention. I think it was something with the heart. And then they they did a, an audit of it and they're like, wait, wait a minute, like this is, this is wrong. But profit-driven motivations are an issue like we have to be aware that when we have a profit-driven medicine model there are things that there are things that can emerge yeah and i think what what basically i can take from what you're saying is is you just help people find a thread where they can start to tug start to tug at the narrative and start to see like huh this doesn't make sense and then it at least opens a little bit of a softening of the mind like 
okay okay mm-hmm. so it's not exactly what they've been saying and then once the mind is open then there's more threads that'll emerge and more ways in which we can start to shape a more comprehensive truth yeah right. and it, sorry one last thing too is um what's interesting is they're also calling myo and pericarditis a mild adverse symptom and if it's irreversible and most people who get severe myocarditis need a full heart heart transplant within five years so is that mild like does that seem mild to you yeah i mean that's a that's a hell of a classification system yeah that'd be like ordering mild sauce for your tacos (laughs) and then like habanero (laughs) yeah and just lighting your face on fire and sweating like you're at the end of hot ones but yeah i get it you know i mean it's uh it's there's a lot of issues with how things are how things are being being played so to, to ask you that question when you have colleagues or you have friends or you have allies like what is your strategy for helping open their mind to the you know the nuances of this issue so the struggle for me is far more because um, as i mentioned before that there's a lot of cherry picking of data in our fee- in our scientific community and that's been going on for a while so we have been turning a blind eye to um, either lack of controls or you know eliminating um, data points that don't fit the narrative or don't tell a good story and in fact uh, the Norway study where you know a, a lot of elderly people died in that nursing home and they did a, a complete thorough investigation and they could very conclusively say that 26 of those people died because of the COVID vaccine. So to completely deny that this could happen anywhere else in the world is again, somehow turning a blind eye. So there was a study, just to just to be clear for people who are unfamiliar with this study, there was a study done in Norway that showed that there was in a select group of people, 26 of them died from the vaccine. There was uh, a report almost now maybe a year ago where um, 20 elderly people were in in a nursing home were given uh, COVID vaccines. And I think 26 out of, I I don't remember the exact number, maybe 30 or 26 of them died. And so they stopped vaccinating them and then they did a thorough investigation and found that yes, it was due to COVID vaccine. So mm-hmm. we've had a lot of deaths in nursing homes as well, but those are not obviously pinned down to um, the vaccines. There is no um, postmortem or any other thorough studies done. But in terms of, you know, you've mentioned several times about um, profits and things like that, which we would call conflict of interest, right? There was a time that drug company reps would be in doctor's office asking them to promote their drugs. And that was stopped, this conflict of interest. They cannot come and promote, ask doctors or physicians to promote their drugs. But what's happening with this COVID vaccine? We have everybody, including the president of the United States, promoting this vaccine. Wouldn't you call it conflict of interest? Wouldn't you want to go check? Why is everybody promoting it? Let the data and let the the science, if you really like, show it. Why does Dr. Fauci need to come on television shows and 
say that these vaccines are safe without any studies. How does he have some crystal ball that yeah. when he can say that today 50% of the people, if they were infected, we would reach herd immunity and tomorrow that number changes to 75 and then next day to 90. On what basis? What, what's the science behind that? Does anybody question that? Why not? Mm-hmm. What is he basing? Fear. So fear is the biggest thing that's been driving. And you, it's like it's hypnotized the whole, uh, you know, globally, uh, people about that. And and so uh, I was in India last month and um, everybody that I met has, or at least 90% of the people that I met in my family has had COVID. My 87-year-old mother lives with my sister. My niece had COVID. My mother didn't even know for three days that she had COVID. She had very mild symptoms, and it was like, oops. But my mother didn't get it. My sister didn't get it. And uh, there's only one person in the family who had very severe COVID, but most of them didn't. But yet there is this, and then a number of them went ahead and got COVID vaccine because of whatever travel restrictions. Uh, the U.S. wouldn't let anybody come, or globally you can't travel without a vaccine because even if you've had naturally, you, it doesn't count. And um, especially my um, um, cousins who are women, they are... Um, some of them are pretty young, and they reported that they have they become they haven't had their periods. Is it a side effect that is from the vaccine? I don't know. It needs to be looked into. But seven of them mm-hmm. in their early forties is that just a coincidence? Is it what? So I told them to report it to as an adverse event, and they first of all didn't even know you could do it. They don't know if they have a system. So we do need to hit the pause button and look at, instead of fear drive, letting this whole um, drive this this thinking, we need to take a pause and really think that, is it really the case? I mean, if you just look at CDC's own report, the number of deaths for this year from COVID is 350,000. That's 0.1% of our population. Is that really emergency? There are more people who are dying, 10 times more people who are dying from cardiovascular or other chronic conditions. This is not the only thing that has long-haul effects. People deny long-haul effects from Lyme disease. In countries like India, there are people who have chikungunya and dengue. Those have long-term effects. Malaria, typhoid. I've had typhoid twice in my life. I've had malaria. I mean, you can have long-haul effects from so many other infectious diseases. But um, you stopped gene therapy trials because four people died. You were using adeno-associated vectors. Here, thousands of people have died, but we don't want to hit the pause button. We continue with the narrative that it's safe, and we continue to mandate it. To me, the biggest issue is forcing everyone to have it and then making people feel who are not, who have genuine fear of not taking it, make them feel like, they are heels, that they are, they are some evil people who, who are tr- there to destroy 
this world or they're so selfish or they are and to then hear the president of the United States say the same words that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and that they are unself they are selfish people is outrageous yeah and and again goes to the conflict of interest being knowing that pharmaceuticals are the one of the top contributors to campaign contributions and all of the other ways in which money is involved in all of these different things i mean the conflict of interest is a major issue that yeah. we have to that we have to take a look at and i think your analysis of the situation as a whole um is really well said and and look for everybody listening like it's important that we speak up you know i mean there's a you know again referring to the podcast with matthias desmet which i really recommend to everybody there's a effect called mass formation where people start to get in this herd mentality this this kind of mass hypnosis where they just keep hearing the same information which is triggered like a hypnotist through vocal repetition of the mm-hmm. same things over and over again and how news media is saying the same thing literally the same thing on every different channel you know and there's really powerful clips of the exact same words coming out of all of these different channels which pretend like they don't you know like each other but they're all saying the same thing and then all of a sudden there becomes this this state where it's very difficult to it's very difficult to convince someone of something other than what they've been you know in some ways hypnotized to believe but one way to do it is to use our voices in in a rational logical calm loving way to be a different voice a voice that says you know it's also important to consider the quality of our lives and and choosing how we live over worrying about how likely we are to die you know i mean we're not here to prevent death at all cost we're here to live an amazing beautiful life and so let's look at this thing holistically and uh, and the more people who can share that message from all the different perspectives you know the better off we'll be and we need that mm-hmm. you know we need to, we need to take a stand but also the finger pointing the villainization the dehumanization on both sides like no matter who you are like don't be calling somebody a sheep you know that's dehumanization that's not going to help anything you tell you call someone a sheep and then you expect them to listen to your point of view get out of here you know don't be calling someone a domestic terrorist if you're on the other side like that's not going to work you're not going to have any conversations this isn't going to work you know i have a i have a organization i'm developing called united polarity and the idea of that is to recognize that we may have different opinions but underneath all that there's the commonality that we're all human beings in a human experience and there should be reverence for that on all sides and if you start with the reverence for each other and then you can start to explore the ideas and you know that's just my heartfelt you know prayer for the world is that we start to listen to each other respect each other you know open the dialogues and i i truly believe that you know truth is like a beach ball that you're trying to keep submerged underwater and it just keeps gathering air and takes more and more effort to submerge the truth and eventually it's so buoyant that it comes to the surface and uh and i really believe that the truth of everything that's going on will come to the surface but we're a part of that every time we give our voice to you know what we see and what we what we hear and what we believe it adds a little bit of air to that beach ball and makes it a little more buoyant and uh and that's the way that we're going to make it through this thing yeah and i think you know just like we said neither of us are anti-vaccine by any means it's just we believe that you should be able to make your own decision 
and do a risk analysis. That's what life is based off of. Every time you get in a car, you're making a risk assessment, right? Yep. So for them to start mandating something and pretend that it's 100% completely safe and effective, zero, zero risk at all, that's what we're talking about as an issue, right? Because if there are people that do have comorbidities and they are afraid of COVID, which there's a lot of people that are very afraid of COVID and sh should maybe be so, and those people, if they want to take a vaccine, then by all means, they should have the ability to do so. Yeah. And if you're not as, you know, apt to get serious COVID and you don't want to make that risk of taking the vaccine, when we're seeing a lot of people that are younger getting injured, then I think that's a fair ask. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it's very difficult to argue with that, but yeah. some people still will. Yeah. Any final words, doctor? No, I just hope that, like you said, people are open-minded and listen. And like, I cannot emphasize enough that the future of science is at stake. If people um, lose faith in science because this was so boshed up, if it does indeed turn out that these vaccines are causing so much more harm than causing benefit and people lose faith in science, then for me, it's all, all my life I've dedicated to science and that's just going to crumble. Yeah. And, and then, then what? I mean, for the next medication that comes out that could be really, truly groundbreaking and beneficial, nobody will want to touch it. Yeah. And I mean, and it's not like FDA or CDC or they don't make mistakes. I mean, what's happened with opioid crisis? It took them forever to even recognize it. Sure. Um, approval of new Alzheimer's drug. Uh, everybody on the panel voted to say, no, it's not effective. And yet they went ahead and approved it. So I, I definitely can't get into their minds and say what what is behind all of that. But I do appeal that, you know, let's do good science before we throw out that science is clear. No, science is not clear. Yeah. That's that's a huge fear of mine as well because the mRNA technology has so much promise. Right. It has so much promise and in, in fixing things like potentially even cancer and AIDS, things like this, right? There's so much that we're learning about mRNA. And now if this does become this massive botched experiment with no communication from the government, then anything mRNA in the future is going to be discredited. Mm-hmm. And, and they've been trying mRNA, mRNA, Moderna's mRNA flu vaccine was a, was a colossal failure. It didn't go past phase one. They had in their phase one, um, 124 unsolicited adverse events reported. There have been people trying mRNA vaccines for HIV and other uh, viruses, and it hasn't worked. So my question is, and there was this, their flu vaccine trial was on clinicaltrials.gov. What happened between 2019 and 2020 that a very similar technology went from being a failure to a spectacular success with no side effects, no safety issues? How, if something is too good to be true, it is. Yep. Yeah, we've gone from science to uh, magic, and not the good kind of magic. Because I'm all I'm all for the good kind of magic, but yeah. not the not the smoke and mirrors, uh, not the smoke and mirrors type. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you guys for making the trip out here and and, yeah. uh, and sharing this discourse. And I appreciate everybody for listening with an open mind. Uh, or if you don't have an open mind, I appreciate you listening anyways. <laughs> and uh, 
just um you know and so much so much love to everybody who's struggling with this and their family personally um anybody who's had any issues and and anybody who's whether that's with the virus itself or with the vaccine you know let's all remember that um you know there's there's tragedies on every side and this doesn't you know you shouldn't be rooting for if you're and you know against the vaccine narrative you shouldn't be rooting for people to get injured because these are people who are they're people remember that every vaccine injury is a is a tragedy and on the other side you know if if people who are unvaccinated get sick and get hurt shouldn't be rooting for that either these are people who are they're like us they're me and you living a different life and yeah. so remember just remember these are all not numbers these are people and um and people are you know invaluable yeah invaluable, and they cannot be reduced so thank you so much i appreciate you brother i appreciate you and i appreciate everybody for tuning in Thanks for tuning into this podcast, everyone. I hope it provided information that can help make you more informed about this very complicated and emotionally charged situation that we're experiencing. I founded an organization called United Polarity, and the goal is not to change everyone's minds about the issues that they believe in, but really to encourage people to find the reverence and respect for the common and shared humanity amongst everyone from every side. This is the common ground. And yes, opinions may change. And yes, we're going to believe what we believe. And sometimes those will evolve. But more importantly, let us not forget who we are. We're all team people. We're all team earth. We all share a home. And so let's remember that. Another important part of the mission of United Polarity is to keep a clean and efficient and accessible epistemic comments that means a place where people can go to access information and that was another one of the goals of this podcast is to provide information that may not be accessible in the epistemic comments the place where people go for information because of issues like censorship or because of just the algorithms feeding information to one side or the other. So hopefully this shared information that can be valuable. And lastly, United Polarity is about bringing together communities, communities that can help be a catalyst for the mutual growth that's necessary. We're all tribal creatures at heart. We all wanna be seen, we all wanna be loved. So if you're interested in United Polarity, and you find something that resonates, you can use the hashtag, hashtag United Polarity, or you can follow us at United Polarity on Instagram. There'll be more coming out on United Polarity soon and how to get involved. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We love you, and we'll see you next week.